Hello everyone, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And welcome to the long-awaited third episode of the Secrets of Story podcast. Okay, James, how are you? I'm great. I'm ready for the apocalypse, and uh, the, the new year is coming, and it's, it's going to be dreadful. It's going to be dreadful. Everybody talked about how terrible 2016 was. After November, that was pretty crazy when people were still talking about that. I'm like, this is going to be the last great year America ever has. Like, Bowie dying is not going to seem like that big a deal compared to what is coming uh, for the next four years. However, it gave me a great idea that I'm going to just give away right now. You had had the whole idea of, like, giving away ideas? Yes. Okay, well, hold on. Which you have failed to do in our three I'm going to do it right now. Okay. David Bowie. Carrie Fisher, Prince, Leonard Cohen. Who else died in 2016? Notable. Oh, um, oh, all sorts of people. Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds. Uh Okay. What it is, they didn't die. They were all whisked away to become an Avengers-like super team (laughs) to fight some great evil that was going to happen in 2017. So it would be the most tasteless and yet the most timeless movie just crank it out immediately maybe they all go up against trump who knows but but like it's like bowie was the first to go because he's the one who died in january so he's kind of like the leader he's like the nick fury of the team and and then like when everybody when the various stars died that was him recruiting them like he met prince in the elevator and and he was like prince it's gonna look like you died in this elevator but in fact I'm, i'm taking you for my team did and, Prince die in an elevator? Yeah, and that's what makes it so like kind of chilling and like let's go crazy. He says, "Let that D elevator take me down." Oh no, let's go! And he died in his own elevator. I did not know that. That is really creepy. That is really strange. Okay, well, I think that's a great story idea, James. It's not entirely unlike uh, the story idea we'll be discussing today. So, as you may have heard on our previous podcast, today we're going to completely break our format. We did our format twice. That is, we're in the rule of threes. Twice is all you need to establish a pattern. And then the third time you break that pattern. And so we are doing that today. We are following the rule of threes. We've done two normal episodes of the show. Even then, we didn't do two normal episodes because you didn't present your own story idea to give away in the second episode. So, and the result is that my dumb little Leica idea, which I very publicly threw away in the first episode just keeps coming back and hitting me in the face because it's all we've talked about on this show we talked about it the first week we talked about it the second week well for those now we're talking context, about it the third week what, 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 for those without context what's the idea okay so this was i gave away an idea in the first week of the show that what if when mike of the space dog was shot in the space he uh you know all we know she 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 all we know is that when mike of the space dog was shot in the space that uh who, who is like a, like who shot her into space this was in 1950-something, 1956 or so. Uh, the Soviet Union decided to send one of their dogs, their Cosmo dogs, into space in order to see what would happen. But they did, even then, they didn't really have any way of monitoring Leica, so they don't. They even they didn't really know. They were just like, "Well, we shot her into space, and then we didn't. We have no idea what happened to her." And they thought this would be something that the whole world would be amazed at what they'd done. You know, we've sent the first Earthling into space ever. And instead, people were like, that poor dog, you killed that poor dog. And the Soviets were sort of taken aback by this and uh, were shocked. And so I gave away the idea of, you know, given that all we know is that Leica stopped responding and we don't know what happened to her, maybe she was taken to another galaxy where whenever someone is the first of their uh, planet to go into space, they go, oh, you're the first person from this planet to go into space. You've got to now represent your planet and prove that you're worthy in our intergalactic games. And so that was my idea. 
And I tried giving this idea away. James was actually the one who caught it. This was not the original plan. He then wrote, he spent three days writing a screenplay based on my idea. And then we discussed it briefly on the second week's episode. And now for the third week's episode, we were going to then read it ourselves aloud. And then I was going to jump in and critique it as we went. However, James, you have, you have done something different. What have well, you done, I got James? my niece and nephew to read it with me. And, and so we're just going to play that file of my niece, Freya Trefanides, and my nephew, Theo Trefanides, um, reading it aloud with me. And then we'll jump into that. That way you don't have to hear just our voices the entire time. Now, I do, I do want to say, when I read it aloud with Freya and Theo, I realized, and I knew this from the beginning, this is a terrible script. <laughs> um, and, now, and, now you realize this. But, but... The, I, I, I knew, like, even in the, the first flush of creation, I said, okay, I can do this in three days, and then I'm going to give it to Matt on the fourth day. Even then, I was like, but I, I think this is, like, a valuable exercise to open oneself up and show a terrible thing that one's written and see what a first draft looks like and then go ahead and critique it and see how we can get from first draft to a better draft. Um, like, I already see a lot of problems, and I saw them a lot when I was with Freya and Theo, and I noticed, like, the expressions on their faces, what they liked, what they didn't like. Um, and so I'm. And how I'm, how old are Freya and Theo? Uh, she's 18, and he's like uh, 16. 16. So okay. I'm ready to absorb any criticism with good humor and an open heart and an open mind because I have no dog in this fight. You you do have a dog in this fight. The dog Leica is is your dog in this fight. Matt, you got me again. I got you again. See, I'm already giving you notes. I'm already destroying you. Okay, so let's go okay, ahead. Okay, here's the thing. The fact that you approach notes as saying, I destroyed you, is like the big Matt Bird problem. <laughs> I'm going to annihilate you. My helping you is going to destroy you. Everybody who decides to pay Matt to give them notes, remember, this is how he approaches it. He wants to destroy you. I think that's best. You've got to take down your idols. You've got to... You've got to <laughs> I've never down. been your idol. You've got to tear things down to make them better. I think it's true. No, it is true. I do give paid notes, and so uh, this will be a little preview. It's probably going to be the worst advertisement ever for a paid note service. What? No, I was, I was giving you a, an opening to, to look like you're a gracious notes giver. Yeah, but but I'm clearly not going to be a gracious notes giver over the course of tonight's podcast. And people are going to listen to this going like, oh my god, I would never pay that guy for notes. See, the thing is, like... For James, I'm a little rougher on James than I would be on you, dear podcast listener. So uh, please don't take this personally. Okay, so should we go ahead and listen to this thing, James? Sure, yeah, let's go ahead. All right, so I'm going to, we're going to hit play. I'm going to play this recording you have made with yourself and your niece and nephew. And then I will, whenever I want to give a note, I will stop, I'll give a note, and then if you want to respond to the note, you can respond, or else we can keep going. And by the way, if I haven't made this clear before now, one of the many problems <laughs> with this script is that James says it's, I thought it was a feature screenplay, he says no, it's the first episode of a TV show. Uh, well, I don't I, even know, maybe it's maybe I should make it into a musical. Or maybe it should be a musical. We're going to improv some songs tonight, like whose line is it anyway? We're just going to, we're going to take out the piano and we're going to improv some songs. If, if that's a promise, then I'm really excited. If that's just you with empty snark, then I'm going to be very disappointed in you. That was empty that's, snark. And it's 70 pages long. It's 70 pages long and it's 70 dense pages because when he read it aloud, the file that we're going to be going from is an hour and 16 minutes. It's 76 minutes. This is going to be, I should warn you right now, a supersized podcast. The previous two episodes of the podcast have been around 35 minutes. But if we're working from an audio file that is already 76 minutes, 
uh, and then we're going to be adding to it. Oh dear God, this is going to be long. So you know I, what? This one might be skippable. This one might be skippable. You, That's you, what we're you know trying what? to say. Go ahead and skip this one. Go ahead and skip this one. Okay, who's left? You are the ones we love. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna hit start here. Okay, let me go ahead and uh, get the setup. Exterior, icy Russian tundra, dusk. A pack of a dozen dogs race across the ice. The dogs leap over hurdles, scramble through concrete tunnels, and scamper across narrow, rickety wooden bridges in a canine obstacle course. A little car the size of a golf cart zooms alongside the pack, driven by a soldier bellowing in Russian at the dogs through a megaphone. One dog that is smaller than the others, Laika, manages to keep ahead of the pack. Good dog! I'm a good dog! The dogs come over a hill. A 1950s-style scientific outpost rises in the distance. Aggressive, brutalist concrete. Lights shine across the dark, icy plain. It's Star City, the Russian version of Cape Canaveral. Near the outpost, a silver rocket stands in the launching pad, illuminated by Klieg lights swarmed by faraway technicians. Okay, so here I am jumping in. I just want to say this is a great beginning. Uh, you always want to have your characters start off with saying something that is emblematic of them. You know, ideally something that is at once emblematic of their flaw and their strength, and that's exactly what you're doing. You know, good girl, I'm a good girl, is that is her flaw and her strength right there. She's too obedient, and yet she's uh, plucky and game. She's got her flaw and her flip side strength encapsulated right away. We also have a sense right away that you're doing your research, that, you know, you've found out the name of Star City, and, you know, it feels, feels like realistic details of the place in the time. So this is a great beginning. Also, it's a beginning of a silence of a lamb sing. You say have the hero be engaged in strenuous physical activity when we first meet them. Boom. Boom. Okay, let's That's a Matt Bird bam. Piece of advice. Come to life. Come to life. Now let's watch this wonderful thing that I've created turn into a piece of rotten pudding. Fantastic. Alright, let's go back to the let's go back to the tape. Laika, startled by the unexpected sight of the rocket, misses a step. Stumbles. Other dogs catch up. A blue mouse pokes its head out of Laika's collar. Eyes forward. You're alpha. Don't let them catch up. Faster! I'm a good dog! You're an amazing dog. Now go! Go! One of the other dogs nearly catches up, snapping at Laika's heels. Tactic 23C. Laika zigzags, her paws kicking up loose ice into the eyes of the heel-nipping dog. The dog falls behind, temporarily blinded. But another dog catches up! 48Q. 7 o'clock! Laika bounds towards an ice patch. The other dog chases. Laika swerves away, causing the pursuing dog to wipe out on the slippery ice. Laika regains her lead. We've got this! We've got this! He was a good dog. A flash! The dusky sky blazes alight as the rocket on the launching pad blasts off. It's blinding flame and gut-rattling noise causing all dogs, including Laika, to stumble to a halt. The other dogs freak out, cowering and whimpering as the rocket rises. The soldier berates the dogs through his megaphone. Laika alone stares upward, overcome with wondering desire, as the rocket disappears into the heavens. I am. Scene 2. Interior, lab, night. All the dogs are locked in separate cages. Harsh fluorescent light. A lab tech shoves dinner bowls of translucent slime into each cage. Finished, the tech turns out the lights and leaves, locking up behind her. The dogs all slurp their food. The blue mouse squirms in through a crack in an open window. Laika looks up. Their eyes meet. Scene 3. Exterior. The launching pad. Midnight. Laika wanders along the smoking remains of the launch. The blue mouse rides along on Laika's shoulders. An open window glows in the distance, presumably the lab window through which they escaped. The ground still feels warm here. You want to get off Earth? You've got to burn through a lot. How would you know? There's so much about me you couldn't even begin to understand. Nah, I've pretty much gotten to the bottom of you. Yeah? What's that? Jealousy. You want to ride my coattails. Coattails? They only send good dogs into space. 
Scene 4. Exterior icy tundra on a hill. Later that night. Discarded scientific equipment litters the hill. Like in the blue mouse lay on the hill stargazing. They seem so close sometimes, like I could just reach out and take them. They're millions of light years away. Get in a rocket, go ahead. I don't care how fast you go. Speed of light. You won't hit the nearest star for years. You'd be dead by the time you get there. You say that, but I just don't believe you. You're never going to believe anything you don't want to hear. Like it gets up, still staring at the sky. From way up there, I bet you could see everything. The whole world. I'd like to see that. All I've ever seen is this. Blue Mouse shrugs. Laika noses around the junk. She finds something interesting and lifts her leg to pee on it. You're not a male. You don't have to pee like that. If you don't pee like them, they won't respect you. So? I'm the leader of the pack. The Alpha. It's important. Why is it important? A mouse wouldn't understand. We dogs live in packs. If you're not in a pack, then you're either a pet or a stray. Huh. <laughs> Pets? They get taken care of. Strays? They can do what they want. Being in a pack? Sounds like a bunch of political bullcrap. Always wondering whether you're on top or bottom. On your way up or on your way down. Look! A shooting star! On its way down. Okay, so this is great dialogue. This is really good. You're taking on a harder job than I thought you would. Well, I didn't think you were going to write this at all, but when I heard that you had written this, you're taking on a harder job than I would have thought in that, you know, you're really sort of grappling with the political implications of the whole thing. You know, this really feels like this is the Soviet Union, and the whole thing has sort of a Russian feeling to it. There's, you know, like you imagine Russians sitting around drinking vodka and having, you know, philosophical discussions, and yet it still feels like this could happen in a kid movie, that this is, you know, sort of pushing the edge of the amount of philosophy you can cram into a kid's movie. And, you know, and it's, it's setting up some real meat for uh, for the movie slash TV show that's to come, and yet my rereading this, there's not enough jokes early on. Like th- this is supposed to be a comedy, and there, there's like there's kind of like this discussion. But when I was re- reading it with my niece and nephew, I was like, oh, when are people going to start laughing? I think that in the second half there are some legitimately funny jokes, but here there's nothing like that indicates the tone this is going to take later, and I feel that was a, a problem. Yeah, well, certainly I'm going to be talking a lot about tone as we go on. So, yeah, maybe maybe we've already run into the weeds there a little bit, though. But uh, but I'm enjoying what I'm hearing without holding it to the standard of setting up what might come next. Okay, let's go back into it. As Lake and the Blue Mouse continue to talk, our perspective widens to include that shooting star. The focus shifts away from Lake and the Blue Mouse to the shooting star, though we continue to overhear them. You're in my pack, Blue Mouse. You made me an alpha dog. Alpha, beta, I don't buy into that. Dumb hierarchical thinking. Structure's important. Just remember me if they put you on a rocket. I can't promise anything. Like and the Blue Mouse are now off screen. We only hear their voices. We have focused in on the shooting star, which is not a shooting star at all, but the silver rocket we saw earlier. The rocket is in fatal freefall, tumbling wildly, smoking, the lights inside blinking furiously, its guidance fin on fire. Something has gone wrong with that test launch from earlier. Ha, huh, so that's it. how it'll be. Cut me loose, just as soon as you'll scrooge a little success. I didn't say that. I just mean the mission has certain parameters. Certain parameters. Will they really send me into space? The focus shifts to inside the silver rocket plummeting to Earth. Inside this rocket we see, strapped into a bewildering array of equipment, hooked up to telemetry and whirring machines, surrounded by alienating blinking lights and buzzes, a clearly terrified dog. The rocket plunges away from our perspective down to the Earth. Of course. You're a good dog. Am I a good dog? You're a good dog. We're both good. The silver rocket crashes in the distant mountains, but from where we are, the fatal explosion is barely even noticeable. Laika and the Blue Mouse certainly don't notice. Opening credits, Laika and the Blue Mouse. I'll jump in here. So just to clarify, is that is this previous dog been sent up into space and then crashed down to die? Yeah, so we watched earlier in this scene okay. a silver rocket go up. 
but it failed. And so it didn't quite get up into the atmosphere. So it, it was like an experiment. Right. And, and then it crashed. Yeah. It, I, you know, it's a very minor point, but like, you know, sort of my whole concept was like, it's the first dog to go up into space. And, it never and, made it up into space. Okay. So this but, one never made it up into space. And okay. So I, basically, I wanted to show the stakes. Like, this right. is something that she really wants. And yet the people who are doing this for her or, or putting her on this mission don't really care about right. her at all. I wanted to show the stakes early Go on. Go ahead and establish that early on and foreshadow it. Yeah, that's fine. That all works. I think it's a good idea to do it. It's just I wondered if it was violating the concept. Okay, let's keep... Let's I wonder keep if we, we could we could take care of that visually. Like We could show them like approaching like whatever the, the edge of the atmosphere and then right. kind of twisting away before it got there. Yeah. Okay, let's go back into it. Scene 5. Exterior. Star City. Morning. Scientists and technicians stand at attention outside the utilitarian buildings. An official motorcade is rolling up the street. Master Engineer Korolev, a well-fed and competent-looking scientist, stands at attention with his team. A rather frailer and leaner scientist, Chief Theoretician Keldish, approaches him. They regard each other with stoic wariness. Oh, actually, you be Korolev. Okay. Chief Theoretician Keldish, I did not expect you. Master Engineer Korolev, you do me a disservice. How could I not attend the edifying spectacle of your team transforming my mere equations into mighty realities of iron and fire? You do yourself a disservice, Chief Theoretician Keldish. Without your mathematical advances, this launch would fail, and still may. Keldish notices a sweat running down Korolev's temple. My theory is sound, comrade. Sputnik 1 was a success. Four weeks to design and launch the Sputnik 2. Khrushchev asks the impossible. Is it not worth pushing ourselves to our limits in time to honor the 40th anniversary of the revolution, comrade? I have witnessed how Premier Khrushchev rewards failure, comrade. So is this based on real research you did? Did they, did they hurry up the launch of like into space to, because yes. of the 40th anniversary? Yes, yeah, Sputnik went up, and then four weeks later they wanted, they wanted to put Sputnik 2 up. And those are the names of, of the engineer and the and theoretician, Korolev and Keldish. Which breaks the rule of like people having similar names. However, I, I, I had I was bound by historical See, research. I would disagree. I think that when you have minor characters like this, it's good to give them sort of goofus and gallant type names to, so that we'll associate them with each other. I think it okay. works out very well. I thought you had made up those names, and I liked the uh, the made up names. But I love that you're doing your research here. Okay. Surely we are safe. Korolev removes his dentures. His gums are mangled. Do you know where I left my real teeth? The gulag, comrade. I have spent time there. Have you? Keldish is silenced. Korolev replaces his dentures. A big black car pulls out, and Premier Khrushchev emerges. Greetings, Premier. Everything is prepared. Where is Dog? Uh, in the lab kennel. We... We put Dog in space now. <laughs> Six. Interior lab, morning. All the dogs, including Laika, are still locked up in their cages asleep. The scientists haven't come to work yet. A cockroach scuttles across the floor. The cockroach's name is Arcady. He passes a discarded donut crumb on the floor, glances at it for a second, but keeps scurrying. A troop of smaller cockroaches, clearly Arcady's subordinates, come streaming behind Arcady. Arcady alights upon a table. The smaller cockroaches scamper from cage to cage, banging spoons against the cage's metal doors, waking the dogs. Arcady addresses the dogs. Rise up, canines! Rebel against your oppressors! The humans don't have your best interests at heart. They don't care if you live or die. Shut up, Katie! Not this again. I have eavesdropped on their meetings. I have seen their plans. This won't end out well for any of you. The humans will load one of you into that rocket. They will hurl you into space. But they don't plan on bringing you back. 
You will die up there. Uh, that's nonsense. <laughs> they never do that to us. It's just more of your conspiracy mongering again. You might not want to save yourselves, but I can't stand idly by and let you throw away your lives on this meaningless stunt to be shot up in the sky in a tin can and then suffocate, boil, freeze, or explode. No, no. Today you will be liberated. The smaller cockroaches scurry around the cages and pick the locks. One after another, the cage doors spring open. The dogs are free to go, and yet none move, what? except Laika. So this is classic here. It's always a good idea to give your hero a chance not to go forward and then force your hero to decide to move forward with the story. Uh, this is great. I love Arcady as a character. You've got a classic head-heart-gut trio here where you have Laika uh, is heart. Laika is all heart. Uh, the blue mouse is all head. Arcady is all gut. Uh, it's uh, You've got a nice setup going here. Wait, wait, but doesn't the head... I would say that the gut would be the blue mouse who is always in it for himself, and Arcady is the one who is the head, who is saying, no, no, you're doing this wrong. Well, we don't know yet that the Blue Mouse is in it for himself. The Blue Mouse seems to be uh, someone who is speaking wisely here, Mm. and uh, the gut, you know, and Arcady is the one who is acting out of anger. True, Um, okay. So he seems to be the guy. Spleen, you would say. Spleen, yeah. Okay, let's get back to this. What are you playing at, Arcady? Look at you. Even you, with the doors of your cages flung wide open, you still won't take the step to freedom. Listen, Premier Khrushchev's motorcade has just pulled up. The launch is imminent. Only a few minutes before one of you is chosen for a nightmarish, lonely death in space. Go now. Escape! All dogs look to Laika, their leader, for what to do. To their astonishment, Laika steps out of her cage. Arcady, you've lived at the station longer than us, I know. You've crawled everywhere. You've seen things we've never seen. Is what you're saying really true? I know it's true. For humans, every great undertaking begins with a ritual sacrifice. Just as cavemen sacrifice goats on the crude stone altars of their primeval gods, so humans inaugurate their space age with the ritual offering of an innocent animal to their sky devils. Blood sacrifice is how they think. They need it. It's built into their minds. You truly believe the humans don't have our best interests at heart? No more time for talk. We've opened the back door. There's one minute left to escape before any of you is flung into space to die. Go now. Laika seems to consider Arcady for a moment, and then, in one gulp, gobbles the cockroach. The pack of dogs goes crazy with joyous barks. They love this. The other cockroaches are frozen in horror. Thus always to rebels. What is a dog? A dog is loyal. Each one of us was brought into this lab as a starving stray. The humans found me on the streets, eating garbage, thin as a whip, half frozen. The same for all of you, too. And yet the good humans brought us dogs into their warmth, fed us their choicest succulents, treated us like kings, made us into a pack. We are no longer alone. We have each other. And you, you, you insects, is this how you suggest we repay our masters? By deserting them when they need us most? Dogs, is that what we are? Woof, woof, no, we are loyal, woof. We are proud to explore space, with our masters, woof. And that is why you cockroaches will now lock us all back up in our cages, just as you found us. Arcady is not the first cockroach I've had to eat. I've eaten far worse in the frozen alleys of Moscow. Perhaps he will not be the last. Lock us up now. So this is great. We've got our false statement of philosophy here with uh, what is a dog? A dog is loyal. We've now established how far this character is going to have to go. 
Uh, it's You're getting into a little bit of a problem in terms of your hero is a little overly naive. We're getting a little too far ahead of the hero. You know, it's uh, it's pretty obvious to us that uh, both the Blue Mouse and Arcadia are giving good advice and that Laika is wrong. But then you, you pull out of it when... Uh, you have like I do again this wonderfully willful thing. We love our heroes to be willful, and eating the cockroach is a wonderfully willful thing. When I was first reading it, I thought, oh, you know, it's a shame though because you had this great head heart gut combo, and now gut was seemingly eliminated because gut's been eaten. But of course, he turns out to be a true gut hero because he goes in and out of the gut. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and spoiler give alert. Spoiler alert. He will later be regurgitated and uh, will enter back into the screenplay, and I'll be very happy when that happens. But I do think you're starting to run into, you're already starting to get a little long here. That scene was a little long and uh, and a little similar to the previous scene. So, you know, what page are we on now at this point? Um, we are on page 10. Page 10, yeah. So we need to be, uh, we need to be off, we definitely need to be off planet by page, we should really be off planet by page 10. You know, I think this is a problem of like a novelist trying to write a screenplay. Yeah. Um, like I just think, oh, dialogue. Well, that just means like the, the, the there's a, a clear plane and I've got a great horse and I'm ready to run. Gallop, 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 gallop. And I, um, I don't know when to stop. Yeah, but uh, but and it's all good dialogue. So but the, very, but first very, draft, first draft. It's very very hard to stop writing a scene when it's still going well and the dialogue is still good. Um, and it's even harder to cut that scene later. But uh, let's keep going. The smaller cockroaches, terrified, lock up all the dogs again. Laika hops back into her cage and watches closely as the cockroaches lock them back in. The cockroach, tasked with lo- locking in Laika, hesitates. What is it? Do it! You just ate my father. Laika is taken back only momentarily. If you truly believe what your father said, then take your revenge. Lock me up. If he was right and I am chosen, then in a few hours I'll be suffering that nightmarish lonely death in space. So condemn me to execution now if you believe his words. And if you have the guts. The cockroach stares at Laika and slams the door and locks it. You're making a big mistake. You know why you'll never visit the stars, cockroach? Because you have no vision, no spirit. You're suspicious and mistrustful. That is why you'll stay forever earthbound. Footsteps down the corridor. Human voices. Goodbye. Scene 7. Interior hallway near lab. Morning. Khrushchev strides ahead with Korolev and Keldish, who speak to each other in clipped undertones, sotto voce. You believe you have the advantage of me, Master Engineer Korolev? Whatever could you mean, Chief Triotician Keldish? I admit your gulag anecdote had a certain bite. But as I see it, my own time under interrogation to Premier Khrushchev's secret prisons was a sight more excruciating. Keldish pops out a glass eye, rolls it around in his hand, and pops it back in. To replace the eye personally gouged out by Khrushchev himself, Master Engineer Korolev. Perhaps you think you shock me, Chief Theoretician Keldish, but I forgot to mention that I can stomach much worse. Korolev discreetly rips open the bottom of his buttons of his shirt, revealing an iron midriff. <laughs> he wraps it smartly with his knuckle, causing a hollow metallic sound. My entire digestive system rebuilt with genuine Yekaterinburg steel. The same steel used by the jealous vest for their Eiffel Tower and Statue of Liberty. To have my own abdomen partially rebuilt with Soviet industrial ingenuity almost makes me wish to thank Khrushchev for setting those wolves on me to rip out my bowels. You may think I'm falling behind, Chief Engineer Korolev, but I have something to show you. An exotic disability from when Khrushchev was personally torturing me that will make everything you've said take a 
back seat. Shall we retire to the men's room and get to the bottom of it? Soon Korolev, both Korolev and Keldish hold each other's eyes combatively for a moment. Then, curtly, they separately signal their assistants to take over. They leave for the men's lavatory, walking in step. Okay, so here your tone is starting to shift to more go. of a more <laughs> of a broad comedy, and it works. Not only do I like the scene and think it's a funny scene, but it doesn't feel like too jarring of a shift from what we saw before, so it's good. It works. Now let me say, again, uh, with a little foreknowledge here, when I read the scene, I admired the fact that I'm like, oh, and I'm so glad we cut out here. You know, you've made such a gag out of saying, like, having three different uh, euphemisms there. Like, oh, I want to get backseat, get to the bottom of it. And you're like, oh, we know where the scene's going, yada, yada, yada. It gets even worse. You know, uh, he's got an artificial butt. Okay, we're going to cut away. And I was like, good job, James. You cut away from that scene there when we're, we're, we're way ahead of them. We know where this is going. We don't need to see the rest of this. Little did I suspect, we're going to cut back to them later and see the rest of that scene. However, it's going to go into a hyperspace that you never would have imagined. A hyperspace that I would have hoped it would not, yes. Okay, let's go, <laughs> but, but for now, we're cutting away from that scene, which is great. So let's go back to where we were. Scene 8, interior, lab, morning. I know. I <laughs> <laughs> so love it, though. Uh, 8, interior, lab, morning. Leica hears the footsteps of the technicians and Khrushchev coming closer. She is more and more excited. They're coming, they're coming! It's really happening! Khrushchev and the technicians enter. Which is Doug? Give me Doug. A nervous technician unlocks Leica's cage and lifts her out. The technician gives Leica to Khrushchev, who holds Leica out in front of him with fully outstretched arms. Khrushchev and Leica gaze into each other's eyes. Khrushchev kisses Leica on the nose. Good Doug. Laika looks elated. All the other dogs bark happily. Khrushchev leans in closer to Laika. He hooks a little black box with a red button, like a tiny garage door opener, onto her collar and whispers in her ear. Just in case. In the hubbub of the bustling technicians and barking dogs, Laika barely seems to understand. The last would-be liberating cockroaches creep away. So that's great. You've inserted a little mystery box into your uh, screenplay. You've got a little thing that will pay off later, but we'll be encouraged to forget about, and then it won't come up when we uh, when we forget about it and uh, come up at the exact right time. But this is great. By the way, I would say we're on page thirteen here, and the next scene should be the rocket takes off. This mm. is we you've set up everything you need to set up. We've got all our characters here. You know, I don't need to spend any more time in the Soviet Union. Agreed. But unfortunately. We will now have the next several pages. However, th this next scene might be the best scene ever written. It might be. You never know. Okay, let's go ahead and listen. Scene 9. Exterior. The launch pad. Day. A gigantic rocket is on the launch pad. Technicians dart back and forth with last-minute preparations. The blue mouse scampers from place to place in agitation, sneaking and spying. This is happening. It's really happening. This is it, Laika. Interior, prep room, day. Laika is being prepared for launch, surrounded by physicians poking her with syringes, shoving intravenous tubes into her, grabbing her jaw and examining her teeth, strapping her into a leather spacesuit-like harness, hooking her into telemetry wires and biometric equipment, squeezing her into, her into a small padded barrel contraption. Laika looks absolutely thrilled with all of it, tail wagging, dream come true. Laika is carried out of the prep room and loaded into a car. Scene 11, exterior, the launch pad day. A small brass band plays as a car approaches the rocket. Khrushchev watches with some other dignitaries and technicians on some bleachers nearby. The car that Laika is on passes the bleachers and approaches the rocket. Two seats among the scientists are conspicuously empty. 12, scene 12, interior, men's lavatory day. Korolev and Keldish enter the lavatory. 
This had better be good, Chief Theoretician. I am not in the habit of missing rocket launches. This is a certain injury I received from the secret police in my youth. Until this moment, Master Engineer, nobody other than my own mother has seen it. Show it to... Good God! Keldish has dropped his pants. As you can see, my buttocks have been entirely replaced by fiber-reinforced plastic. My original two ass cheeks were removed by a mighty Cossack who grasped them firmly and wrenched them both off with a single agonizing twist. My apologies, Chief Theoretician. Your injury far outstrips any paltry wound of my own. Now look in my butt. Uh, of course, Chief Theoretician. Korolev gingerly peeks at Keldish's backside. It all... Seems to be in order. No, Chief Engineer Korolev. Look in my butt. Korolev cautiously parts Keldish's ass cheeks and discovers a metal spigot. It's a... Keldish hands Korolev a plastic cup. Fill the cup, Master Engineer Korolev. Korolev turns the spigot. A clear liquid issues forth. Korolev fills the cup and cautiously tastes the liquid. His face goes from dubious to delighted. Why, it's premium vodka! There are certain benefits to being able to redesign one's own buttocks from scratch, Master Engineer Korolev. Just as our socialist revolution has wiped clear the errors of bourgeois capitalism and replaced it with rational centralized state planning, so I have made my own ass into a wet bar. And thus, comrade, you will also fill a cup for me with my delicious ass vodka, and we will toast our achievement. Korolev fills a cup for Keldish, too, and they both raise their glasses aloft. To Sputnik 2! And to Laika! To Laika! His <laughs> <laughs> ass vodka. Okay, so you're making the actors laugh. That's good. That's always a good sign. The ultimate good sign is supposed to be when the sound guy laughs. Because, you know, the one guy who's most trained to not laugh, and suddenly if you make him laugh, that's for the best. Uh, you know, nevertheless, as I've said before, you know, this scene seems like you're going into Adult Swim territory here. Yes, that's exactly where I want to be. Which is where you want to be. However, I don't think most of this is really, you know, I'm the guy who originally came up with the idea. It certainly was never, I did not conceive it as an Adult Swim type idea. You know, I don't like Adult Swim. I've never, you know, I I, I like Space Coast, Coast to Coast, okay. Everything you don't like then, Rick and Morty? I don't like Rick and Morty. Uh, you're a piece of garbage. Uh, everything since then, since Space Coast, Coast to Coast has been downhill. You, you didn't. When I showed you the premiere of Rick and Morty, you didn't like it. It's fine. I don't think it matches the tone of the rest of what you're oh, doing. By the way, this is not Dan Harmon, Justin Roiland level. I mean, I understand no, that. But, but, you know, but again, I feel like you already did this joke. I feel like you did this joke by not doing this joke. You set it up that, like, oh, I do have another one. Let's get to the bottom of it. It's like, oh, get it? He has a fake ass as well. And then I already laughed at this joke. And but then you never would have seen is, is superfluous. Just, uh, it's too scatological for me. Fair enough. This is uh, tastes. Um, there are different tastes for different people. I think the uh, the, the phrase goes. And, and more importantly, if you stroke different people in different ways, you get different reactions. Well, uh, I once again, I think we're getting to adult swimming. Yeah, and also more importantly, uh, we're we're just over time. We gotta get we gotta get off this planet. We gotta get out into outer space. If I had to um, delete anything from this script. This would be the last choice. If, I, if, if the whole script had to be just this scene, but stretched out to 22 minutes, that's what I would keep. You know what they say? They say, always leave in all of your darlings. That's what they say, don't they? <laughs> Touche. Never delete your darlings. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's get back into this.
uh, scene 13, exterior, the launch pad, day. The brass band plays in the background as technicians load Leica in the rocket. Leica looks excited and happy, but a ner little nervous. Is this really happening? The technicians give Leica one last pitying glance. Think this contraption will hold together? As long as the mutt doesn't barf all over the biometrics. Ugh, vomit floating all around in the zero gravity? Can't imagine. Leica is starting to look nervous. Technician 1 gives Leica a quick pat. Poor thing. A technicians bolt the spaceship shut with Leica within. 14. Interior. Sputnik 2 capsule day. Leica can barely move in the cramped dim capsule. Light just barely filters in through a reinforced window with an obstructed view. Leica's heart rate picks up, causing the beeping biometric systems to accelerate. A readout of biometric information tracks Leica's vital stats. Heart rate, respiration, perspiration. Scene 15. Interior. Control room day. We see the same biometric information on screens here. Control room technicians sit at computers, reading screens, making last-minute adjustments. Biometric telemetry online systems nominal. Elevated heart rate, 160 beats per minute. Increased respiration. Dog's getting nervous in there. Start countdown. 10, 9. Scene 16, interior, Sputnik 2 capsule, day. Inside the capsule we can hear the voice count on the radio. Laika is starting to freak out. 8, 7. What am I doing? What am I doing? I want out! Somebody get me out of here! Mission abort! Abort mission! A rustling noise within the capsule startles Leica, and the blue mouse emerges. Blue mouse? You're here! Get me out! I, I can't do this! Don't worry. We'll do it together. But you, I, I can't! I, uh... Wasn't this your dream? You've been training this for years. Five. Four. I can't! Look at all those people outside. You know what they have in common? They will never get off Earth. You know why? They're afraid! How do I know they're afraid? Because they're putting a dog in this rocket. If they had any guts, they'd be fighting each other to ride this rocket themselves. Humans are clever, but they're cowards. So we go up instead. They're lost. Our game. Leica is not nearly comforted enough. Two. One. Scene 17, exterior, the launch pad day. The rocket blasts off into the sky, an explosion of light and sound. Scene 18, exterior, viewing area day. Khrushchev holds onto his hat and watches the rocket disappear. He gives a salute. Scene 19, interior control room day. Biometric information on the screens shows high levels of agitation. G-force is kicking in. Heart rate 230 beats per minute. Respiration three times normal rates. Scene 20, interior Sputnik 2 capsule day. Laika and the blue mouse suffer under the rattling of the rocket and the crushing G-forces. The noise is deafening. The beeping and flashing lights are distracting, panic-inducing. The blue mouse curls up in Laika's fur as they endure the acceleration together. I won't throw up. Won't throw up. It's okay. I'm a good dog. I'm a good dog! Scene 21, interior, men's lavatory, day. Korolev and Keldish are completely drunk on Keldish's ass vodka. Korolev turns the spigot again and fills his cup in Keldish's too. We missed the launch! Ah, yes, we totally missed the launch. Right now, if Laika survived, she should be breaking free of Earth's gravity. Oh, if she survived! A million things could kill you in space, comrade. Laika is the first living creature from Earth to enter orbit. That's a very important to our whole thesis here. That's a very important plot point, so it's good to sort of work that in here quickly. Who knows what could happen? Get zapped by radiation? Frozen? Boiled? Or something we haven't even imagined yet? <laughs> of course, it's just a matter of time. Whether Laika dies now or days from now. She was a great dog. She never deserved it. She was a great dog, that Laika. Come, come, master engineer. They embrace awkwardly as Korolev sobs. <laughs> the spigot of ass vodka drips. A loudspeaker crackles to life and a voice speaks. There is also a rhythmic, insistent alarm sound in the background. Master, <coughs> master, <coughs> master <coughs> engineer Korolev. 
control room. Coralep. Control room. Scene 22, exterior, above the Earth, space. The Sputnik 2 hurtles away from the Earth, but bends its path according to gravity, settling into orbit. We continue to hear the insistent alarm sound that means something has gone wrong. <laughs> uh, scene 23, interior, Sputnik 2 capsule, space. The alarm continues, along with a racketing mechanical noise that doesn't sound good. Laika attempts to twist around, but can't escape her tight straps. Blue Mouse floats freely around the capsule in zero gravity. The rocket's broken! We're gonna die! You're the captain of the ship! Get a hold of yourself! Act like a captain. Laika attempts to control herself. Um, I need a status report on that noise. Go check it out, um, Ensign, and come back with a full report. Yes, sir. Blue Mouse swims through the air, floating through a hole behind Laika's chamber and squirming into the back machinery of the rocket. Interior, Sputnik 2 engine room, space. The Blue Mouse discovers a tangle of wires seem to have been wrenched free of their proper places in the agitation of takeoff. Smoke! Sparks! Everything seems broken and crazy! Small air brakes getting larger. Blue Mouse has floated in confidently, but now regards the wrecked machinery with real worry. What's going on back there? Um... Scene 25, interior control room, day. The technicians are worried about the malfunction, too. Lights and alarms. Korolev and Keldish stride in, all business. Status report, technician Vasilyev. So, uh, this has already been said, but I would just like to say, none of this is necessary. <laughs> you, you, we could, we could easily skip over all this and get to the meat of the story, which is Laika's interaction with the other empire, with the outer space empire. True, but there's one thing that I do want to make clear before we meet these people in the other empire, and which is going to come clear in the next, like, uh, page or so, is that the blue mouse is more than a blue mouse. Like, he's going to solve this problem on the ship, this emergency, and he's going to fix it. And then so then when he when we see him later kind of come into his own and completely start solving problems on the ship, it's not completely out of the blue. Right. But I have a problem with that. So we'll get to that. Leakage of the fuel from the primary thrusters has caused air breaks in zones 5, 9, and 14. The dispensed fuel wasn't utilized in the launch. If the fuel wasn't utilized in the launch, then we haven't achieved sufficient thrust to enter a stable orbit. That means the rocket and the satellite and Laika are about to fall back to... Are you implying that it's about to fail? No, sir. I mean... The eyes of the world are upon this mission, Master Engineer. Are you implying it is about to fail? No, sir. I mean... Sir... Uh... Scene 26. Interior. Sputnik 2 capsule. Space. Everything is rattling around as though it's about to break apart. Blue Mouse, where are you? Scene 27. Interior. Sputnik 2 engine room. Space. The expression of the Blue Mouse changes to something we haven't seen yet. A kind of ferociously competent otherworldly determination. From the depths of its fur, he just extracts a futuristic little tool. With maniacal speed, Blue Mouse fixes the broken machinery, patching air brakes, splicing and soldering wires, wrenching bent and twisted mechanisms back into proper shape and place. This is no ordinary mouse! The alarms subside. Boo! The lights blink less frantically. Then the Blue Mouse notices something that surprises him. A briefcase-sized box attached to the inside wall. He tries to open it. He can't. That's strange. Scene 28, interior, control room, day. Wait, thrust system's back online. Pressure stabilizing. Life support system's at full strength. What happened? We get to keep our limbs, is what happened. Dog in space, safe. Dog in space, safe. Everyone cheers! Khrushchev makes a peremptory motion. He and his retinue begin to leave. Congratulations, Matt Engineer Korolev. Theoretician Keldish. Scene 29, interior, Sputnik 2 capsule, space. Blue Mouse floats back in, but looking backward over his shoulder at a briefcase-sized box, puzzled. What happened? I fixed, I mean, 
it just kind of fixed itself. <laughs> so I think right there is a problem. I think we're starting to get into one of the biggest issues I have with this screenplay and that from this point in, essentially, the Blue Mouse becomes the hero of the story. Mm. Once we once we are sharing intimacy with the Blue Mouse, once we know what the Blue Mouse is doing, once we know that he is being the hero of the story, he is the one who saves the rocket launch, he's the one who saves like his life, and that Micah has no idea, then we've shifted our identification. We've shifted our intimacy to the Blue Mouse. This is a problem... First of all, in that you're calling it like in the Blue Mouse, you know, Leica is still, I think, our hero. Leica is still the person we want to be our hero based on those opening scenes. But now we're feeling, we're going to start to feel here and feel it more and more. Like, I just can't keep Leica to be my hero anymore. She's becoming far too superfluous to the action, far too unaware of what's going on. And then the Blue Mouse has to become our hero by default. But as we will find out, the Blue Mouse is also a very unsatisfactory hero in many ways. How do we fit this into, like... The Kishiko's Guide to the Galaxy, where there's Arthur Dent, who seems to be the main character, but Ford Prefect knows and does everything. Or Doctor Who, in which, like, there's the, the especially with the reboot, there is, like, the main character who's that blonde girl, which turns out to be the, the companion, but then the Doctor knows and does everything. Or with um, uh, Rick and Morty, in which, like, it seems at first that Rick is, I mean, Morty is a hero, but then Rick is the one who knows and does everything. I'll, I'll focus on Doctor Who, which is you know extremely tricky on Doctor Who, because do you identify with the companion or with the Doctor? And it's a decision they basically have to make at the beginning of every Doctor episode. And there are episodes in which you identify primarily with the Doctor, and episodes in which you identify primarily with the companion. And they're, they just do a tremendous amount of work on that show, behind the scenes, that you don't really see in terms of you know toggling that back and forth. And there are times when they just completely screw it up. And when Doctor Who doesn't work, it's because they're like, oh, they thought we would be identifying with the Doctor here. Or they're acting as if we're identifying with the Doctor when we're not. We're identifying with the Companion or vice versa. It's, it's tremendously tricky uh, having those sorts of shifts. And the examples you're citing are all places where it's not like, oh, there are examples that got away with it. And that proves that it's not tricky. It's like, no, those examples prove that it is tricky. They've just managed to pull it off. Now what? Blue Mouse is still behind Leica. He consults his futuristic tool without Leica seeing what he's doing. A readout on the tool blinks at him. Yes. Now what? Exterior. Above the Earth. Space. The Sputnik 2 capsule orbits the Earth. Scene 31. Interior. Control room day. Now what? Science, comrade. Onboard Geiger counters detect charged particles. Spectrophotometers measure UV and X-ray emissions. We monitor Leica's vital statistics until... Until when? I expect the animal will survive 10 days. Sputnik 2 itself will crash back down to Earth in a few months. Then then let us have a toast to our achievement! (laughs) Keldish begins to take off his pants, but Korolev subtly motions him to stop. (laughs) Scene 32, exterior, above the Earth, space. The Sputnik 2 hurtles far over the Earth. The sun peeks over the horizon. Scene 33, interior, Sputnik 2 capsule, space. Laika gazes out the window in wonder. Blue Mouse looks out the window warily, as though expecting something. Look out the window, you can see the sunrise! A sunrise in space, it's incredible! It's something, alright. How long do you think the humans will let me stay up here? It's amazing, but I can't wait to tell the rest of the pack! Um... Scene 34, interior control room, night. The night shift has replaced the daytime technicians. Oh, I'm going to call it a day. Call me up if anything changes. Scene 35, exterior, above the Earth's space. Sputnik 2 is now on the dark side of the Earth. It's been hours. So I'll just say here that this is, we're getting, you know, a field of where I had a, it, my original conception was in the pitch, which was that basically as soon as their instruments stop responding, 
that it's because she's been sucked into this other galaxy. And I like this idea that in the other galaxy they're watching us, and as soon as an Earthling leaves, or, you know, leaves the atmosphere, enters Earth orbit, that then we violated their rules and someone has to be sucked over there. So the fact that it's been a couple hours, I'm reading this, I'm going like, oh no, it should be instantaneous. But there's one thing that I wanted to get in here, and maybe there's not enough time in here for it, is the pathos of Laika. That's that true. she goes up, and then she has to have this moment when she thinks, oh my God, they don't care about me. And then that way, that way that can echo later when she's like, wait, what am I fighting for anyway for this earth that just threw me up for nothing? I think she needs to hurt here for a while. Now, I, I understand there might not be time for this, but I mean, in, in the kind of wacko doodle, you know, unproducible like screenplay that I made here, I just feel like this emotional beat has to happen of she has to hurt and feel betrayed here. I think that's, uh, you make a fair point. Okay. Scene 36, interior Sputnik 2 capsule space. The sluggish beeps and dim lights of the biometrics indicate that Laika is not healthy. They haven't sent up any orders, no communication. What's going on? Blue Mouse seems like he wants to speak, but can't quite bring himself to tell Laika the truth. I'm strapped in, I can't move. Why am I even up here? Don't they want to see me again? Don't they want to tell me I did a good job? That I'm a good dog? Blue Mouse starts to speak, but stops. 37. Exterior, above the Earth, space. The Sputnik 2 hurtles through lonely, empty space. Scene 38. Interior, Sputnik 2 capsule, space. Time has passed. Laika's eyes are glassy, her body limp. A feeding tube hangs near her mouth, but she ignores it. The Blue Mouse looks the same as always. He floats near the window expectantly. Blue Mouse, are you still there? I'm here. I can't eat from my tube anymore. Something feels wrong. My my body feels wrong. I don't feel good. Shh. What if Arcady was right? What if the humans shot me into space and they don't want me back? Blue Mouse says nothing. I'm scared, Blue Mouse. I feel belted in so tightly. I can't move. It's so hot in here. Don't you feel it? Like, boiling inside. I'm never getting out of this capsule. I'm not getting out, am I? This is it, isn't it? Blue Mouse says nothing. I thought I had a mission in space. I thought I had a destiny in the stars. I thought I was helping the humans. So what were we saying the first week about ham triggers? (laughs) She sold it. Uh, um, oh, your cousin is a great actress. But your your niece is a great actress, by the way. She's she's really selling this. But yeah, no, this is uh, this dialogue is too much going on too long. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. I thought they loved me. Blue Mouse begins to look concerned too, as if something that should have happened already hasn't happened yet. I can't breathe. Wait, Blue Mouse, Khrushchev, he gave me something to to help me if I was in trouble. He gave me. Oh. Laika is trying to scrabble for the little black box that Khrushchev gave her. Blue Mouse doesn't notice, because unnoticed by Laika, the Blue Mouse's tool emits a beep. There is a shimmering flash outside the window. The Blue Mouse somersaults over to the window, staring. Finally! Scene 39, exterior, above the Earth, space. A gigantic alien spacecraft materializes next to the Sputnik 2, dwarfing it. This is the Fidbiglian mothership. Scene 40, interior, control room, night. A radar monitor tracks the Sputnik 2, which is represented as a tiny point of light. That point is suddenly crowded by a gigantic glow that almost fills up the screen. It's the same shape as the mothership. What the? Scene 41, exterior, above the Earth, space. The monstrous Fidbiglian mothership sidles over to Sputnik 2. A gun-like apparatus emerges from its underside. A steady beam of light streams out of the gun. The gun swivels back and forth, sweeping its light over the Sputnik 2 as if scanning it. Scene 42, interior Sputnik 2 capsule space. Laika is very weak, almost dead, but she sees exactly what's going on. 
What is that? Fidbiglians. And just in time. So we're starting to get into this issue that you have taken my idea, which I pitched, and you have rewritten it to become The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is... Uh, Remember I said the way that it would work is if it was a Vonnegut or a Douglas Adams idea. Which which you have taken to heart. I feel like that we're going to run into several things that are too similar to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy here. But just in general, again, I feel like you've got this problem of if this is all the Blue Mouse's idea, if the Blue Mouse is the one who signaled them, then we're getting away from the core concept. This core concept that you have these this evil empire that is always triggered by being the first in space. That's the whole reason this screenplay is about Laika. That's the whole reason we're doing Laika, because Laika was the first Earthling to go into space. And if that's not actually the trigger of the story, if it's the trigger is that the Blue Mouse summoned these aliens, then I feel like we're getting away from the oh. appeal of the core concept. Oh, I didn't, okay, so maybe that should be rewritten. I didn't feel that the, the Blue Mouse summoned them. He just knew that the Fitbiglians would be picking them up. And so his tool will kind of flash to indicate they're about to pick you up. Okay, that wasn't clear to me. Okay, so I guess in general, like if you're going to do comedy... It can't be an evil empire. It has to be an incompetent empire. Evil empire is rarely funny. Incompetent empire is always funny. I don't know. I, I think evil can be funny. I don't know. Like the Vogons in in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy are funny. But like the, 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 the planet in Life, the Universe, and Everything, which is evil, is not funny. Right. I mean, but, you know, look at, like, Galaxy Quest as evil aliens, and it's still a very funny movie. You know, you can do evil in funny. You can do evil in comedy. Scene 43, exterior, above the Earth, space. The gun-like apparatus retracts back into the mothership. A door just above the gun-like apparatus opens. Within, a vast three-dimensional printer swiftly replicates the Sputnik 2. The fake Sputnik 2 zooms out of the mothership, soon achieving the same speed as the real Sputnik 2. The two ships fly side by side. And inside the window of the replicant Sputnik 2 is... Scene 44, interior, Sputnik 2, capsule space. Laika stares out to her window and into the window of the replicant Sputnik 2 capsule and sees through the window living replicas of herself and the blue mouse. The two Laikas stare at each other in panic. What is going on? Scene 45, exterior, above the Earth, space. The mothership sucks in the real Sputnik 2. The replica Sputnik 2 zooms on in the path of the real Sputnik 2 would have taken... Then, without fuss, the Fibiglian mothership vanishes. Scene 46, interior control room night. The signal representing the Fibiglian mothership vanishes from the radar screen. We are left with one bright point representing the Sputnik 2, the replica. Night technician 2 yawns as he enters. What'd you get me up for? Oh, nothing. Instrument error. It's fine now. I brought you something. A gift from Chief Theoretician Keldish. He places two shots of vodka on the table. They toast and both sip. Commercial break. Oh my god, was that your first commercial break? <laughs> yes, it was. We're on first page, draft. We're on page 28. Yeah. We're on page but, but, 28. Well, what about my lush novelistic detail? That must have pushed us through, you know, a couple extra pages. It did indeed. Uh, unfortunately, you know, you've got to, you know, when you're writing TV, if this is intended to be TV, then you've got to think about your commercial breaks more. You've got to, you know, it's hard. It's hard to say, like, oh, I'm going to hold myself to page numbers while I'm writing because, well, you know, why not just write it long and then cut it short? But you, you know, but you've gotten way too far off the mark if you're on page 28 by the time you have your first commercial break. Uh, but I think that you should, you, I, I, I still feel you should write long and then cut it down. I will have, like, now that I'm like a, like a couple weeks away from this and I don't really care about this script anymore, 
if I went, deemed to go back and work on this, I would find it very easy to cut all kinds of stuff. And the, the, the advantage is at least I finished it. And I think there's that, that thing that, who, who said it? Montaigne, like, I, I wrote a long letter because I didn't have the time to write you a short one. Yes. Like, like just, like, write it long and then cut it later. But well, who cares? Your words are cheap. They cost, it costs nothing to write a word. But when we were planning this podcast, I said, look, this podcast is going to be way too long. Can't you cut it down from 70 pages to 30 pages before we record the podcast? And you said, no, 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 I can't do that. Yeah, because Christmas is coming up and New Year's and I wanted to be with my family. I already wrote you a 70-page script, you you asshole you gotta be thankful for that all right all right all right scene 48 exterior the fidbiglian system space this part of space looks different than the region of space near the earth that we'd last seen stars more numerous more dense in distribution more colorful and of various larger sizes feels like we are closer to the center of the galaxy various vast spindly interlocking structures float in space suggesting a civilization that is adapted to living off world the gigantic fidbiglian mothership materializes with a casual shimmer Scene 49. Interior. Hangar of Fidbiglian Mothership. The Sputnik 2 capsule sprawls on a spotless metal floor. Shadowy alien shapes slowly approach it. Scene 50. Interior. Sputnik 2 capsule in hangar. Blue Mouse furiously bites open the harness that keeps Laika in her seat. Outside the window, ominous silhouettes approach. The penny has dropped for Laika. I knew it! I knew there was more to you than you were letting on! I thought you'd gotten to the bottom of it. Well, I just meant that... That I wanted to ride on your coattails. I did. Gotta go. Go? You'll be fine. But don't tell them I came with you. Say you were alone. It's your best chance. What are you? Laika, I'm a blue mouse. How many other blue mice have you met on Earth? You do the math. Blue Mouse chews the final restraints loose. Laika can now get out of the, her harness. Blue Mouse removes one of the patches he'd, move, he'd use to block the air brake, revealing a mouse-sized hole, and squirms out. Laika is alone. The hatch of the capsule rattles. Laika's eyes widen. The hatch is wrenched off. Laika stares up, shocked as ominous shadows close in on her. Scene 51. Interior. Corridor of the Fidbiglian mothership. The blue mouse scampers down the corridor. A bunch of Fidbiglians round the corner, deep in conversation. The Fidbiglian aliens resemble upright slugs, a little larger than humans, with two wide eyes on stalks and a long, snout-like mouth. The blue mouse hides, watching the aliens pass by. When the coast is clear, the blue mouse trots to a computer console. He sticks his futuristic tool into it. Information flashes across the screen. The blue mouse reads, absorbed, but freezes when a voice booms from behind him, and a shadow rises up over him. I'm kind of uh, wondering, I put in the futuristic tool as a stopgap, like... It's going to be like the sonic screwdriver in Doctor Who or whatever, right. or the guide in Hitchhiker's Guide. I was like, what What could, I just want to brainstorm, what could it be that would make it more uh, um, individual or unique? Oh, you're asking me? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I had some idea that it would be part of his body, like, you know, his butt would open up and something would come out, or his back would open up, or something, like something would be part of him. What is it with you and opening up butts? You were, <laughs> Hold on. Let's let that long <laughs> silence linger for a little while longer, and then, as it gets more and more awkward, go right back into this into the script. All right. Scene fifty-two. Interior. Sputnik two capsule. Laika shrinks back. The three monstrous Fidbiglian emissaries close in. The middle Fidbiglian puts its mouth tube on a necklace-like apparatus and speaks. Flarg, 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 flarg. Laika looks more confused. The Fibbiglians glance at each other, discomfited. One of the side Fibbiglians gargles nonsense, nonsense advice to the middle Fibbiglian, who twiddles knobs in the necklace apparatus and speaks again, translated through the apparatus. 
Congratulations, Earth Organism. Be at ease. We are welcome to this location. Acknowledge greeting with a remark. Um, thank you? There is a moment while the apparatus translates. You have expressed gratitude. Now we will tell you statements. You are the first living organism to leave planet Earth. Is this a truth or a falsity? State now! Laika begins to <laughs> regain confidence, realizing the magnitude of this moment. Yes. I am the first organism to leave Earth. I understand statement. Now I tell another statement. Many planets also put living things in space, but Galactic Empire lives in organized way. When new planet puts living thing in space first time, we must test planet. Test? The Biglians hurriedly confer, regroup, and address Laika again. Your planet is clever enough to build the spaceship. Therefore, your planet is clever enough to maybe cause problems in our harmonious galactic empire. Good planets with spaceships can live in galaxy. Bad planets with spaceships must be destroyed. How do you tell the good planets from the bad? Test. Test? Okay, so now here we are. We're on page 31. We've gotten to the heart of the idea. This was the idea that was pitched to you. You have returned. You have uh, done your number one job, which is capture the, capture the heart of the pitch. You have created this central idea, and I think it works. I think at this point, we're firing on all cylinders. Like I said, I think this should be on page 15 or so instead of page 31, but I think that this is uh, the basic idea. Of course, I think it works. It was my idea in the first place, but uh, I think it's good. I agree 100%. This should be shorter. Um, it, it should be much shorter, and I think it should be funnier earlier. Sure. Um, if, I, if I had to do it over, like I, I would have more jokes earlier. Um, I would have jokes in general. Um, like when you look at the like the joke gens- density of Rick and Morty script, it's like five jokes a page. Oh yeah, it's incredible. Um, but I think I can't help but feel that when they wrote their first drafts of any of these things, there were not as many jokes per page. Yeah, and you just have to find a way to funny it up. I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. So this is the best I can do. And then maybe once you have a structure in place, then you can kind of hang the jokes off of it. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay, great. Scene 53, interior corridor of Fibiglian Mothership. Blue Mouse is cornered by Fibiglian Guard, who looms over him. The guard gargles and howls at Blue Mouse, who merely stares back. Fibiglian Guard activates his own translation necklace. Who are you? You're not authorized to be here! Blue Mouse points his tool at the necklace. The necklace crumples. The necklace chain breaks. The crumpled translator thunks to the floor. Then Blue Mouse begins fluently speaking in Fibiglian language, without any use of the translator. My authorization comes from well beyond your ken, Private. Smart enough. Smooth out le- that lapel. Clearly, discipline has slipped since last inspection. Uh, uh, inspection? Thought you'd go forever while another visit from the Emperor's Inspector General? Think again. Now take me to your commanding officer. You mean... You mean Commander Fibbly-Blips? Who else would I mean? Scene 54, interior, hangar of Fibiglian mothership. Laika, having exited Sputnik 2, is being politely led by Fibiglian emissaries through the hangar. The hangar is full of other small ships of various crude designs, mostly the same size as the Sputnik 2, all amateurish, fierce tries at spaceflight, but from other alien technology traditions, some insectoid, some weirdly furry, some spiky, some globby, etc. Other Fibiglian emissaries busily surround those ships, opening them up. What are those ships? Trillions, planets, and galaxy. Every few hours, a planet, somewhere in galaxy, sends living organisms to space for the first time. We warp there, pick up ship, test organisms against each other. Against each other? Cannot let sub-average planets enter galactic empire. Thus, you will compete against all other organisms we picked up. If you smart, strong enough to win, your planet's safe. If not, your planet destroyed. 
for the safety of the universe. What? But I can't... I'm just... Be of confidence. You smart and strong enough to build ship you came in, weren't you? Actually, I didn't build it. I'm just... Just in time, Lycan notices that the Fibiglians are all staring at her with sudden suspicion. They finger their weapons. I mean, of course I built my spaceship. So this is great. This is just the way I pictured it in my original pitch, and uh, it's going well. Steaks! Steaks. There are steaks. They're all set up. This is great. Scene 55, interior, Commander Fibbly-Blip's meeting room. The door whizzes open as Fibiglian guard escorts Blue Mouse into the room. A banquet table is laid out with alien delicacies. I will bring you, per Commander Fibbly-Blip's, to you immediately, sir! Very good, Private. You may go. The door whizzes shut. Blue Mouse waits for a moment before taking out his strange tool. He presses some buttons on it and then speaks. Baby Bumbles. Baby Ronco. The tool shoots out a hologram of two giant babies, side by side, who are wearing nothing but diapers. Everything about them looks like an adorable infant, except for their eyes, which are verminous and calculating. Ah, have you destroyed Earth yet? Not yet, Baby Bumbles. <laughs> you were supposed to have destroyed Earth 100 years ago! I'm getting there. So I should say here, first of all, I love the babies. I think that that's, you know, a very original idea. It's something that did not remind me of anything else, did not remind me of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, did not, uh, did not seem indebted to anything. It certainly was not part of my original pitch. And uh, the idea of having evil aliens who, you know, seem to be like Earth babies is great. You know, I do not like this idea that's been introduced that it was the Blue Mouse job to destroy Earth, which I feel like is too similar to uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. Wait, and how is it similar to Hitchhiker's Guide? Ford is just supposed to research Earth. This guy wants to destroy Earth. It's true. It's different in that way, but just bringing in the whole, bringing in the whole issue of, you know, I it's yeah. I've never fun. heard the idea of planetary hitman before. Planetary hitman, you've got my problem with it right there, which is any story that involves the word hitman. I oh, well, okay, this me is nuts. just your kind of like hangover from the '90s. Read too many like knockoff scripts of Pulp Fiction, and so therefore you see that you say. Shane Black, Quentin Tarantino, I don't want to deal with it. But this is just an idea that's floating around, and if it's used in sci-fi in a comparatively original way, which I think I have here, I think it's fine. I think this is like your own problem, which is a hangover but, from the 90s. But no, my problem with the word hitman is it always implies someone who it's... If you are a hitman, you're someone who cannot feel empathy. You're someone who no one can feel empathy towards. You get this idea. People inject hitmen into their screenplays, or anyone who wants to kill a lot of people, which it turns out this character will, because it feels cool. It feels like, oh, you know, I'm throwing away empathy. I'm throwing away everything. Wait, do you is... think that's what I'm doing here, that I'm trying to be cool with the Blue Mouse? Yes. There's anything cool about him? He's not like some guy who like puts on sunglasses and walks away from an explosion. He's just as hapless as anybody else. Eh. Okay. All right. Let's get back into it. When Baby Bumbles hires a planetary hitman, Baby Bumbles expects that planet to be destroyed more quickly than this. Don't tell me you've grown fond of that planet, Blue Mouse. Shut your baby mouth, Baby Bumbles. I'm a professional. I've destroyed dozens of planets, but I do it my own way, you hear? I'm upset. I'm an unhappy baby. I'm a sad baby. Are you a sad baby too, Baby Bunko? That I am, Baby Bumbles. I'm a sad baby. I'm so sad I'm going to cry. Wah, Baby Bumbles, wah. Don't cry, don't cry. I'll destroy your stupid planet. Just give me time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bidbiglians will hear you. <laughs> I can't afford planet-destroying machine. I told you that when you signed the contract. I pivot off what already exists. Get others to do my work for me. That gives us all deniability. But I made a poopies in my boo-boo. Who's going to be my mom? I'm destroyed and I want my binky. <laughs> give me my binky, blue mouse. I, I can't give you a binky. I'm millions of light years away. And we're communicating by hologram. How are you going to do that, blue mouse? How are you going to destroy the earth? It's already happening. Listen, I made sure the earth's first stab into space was noticed by the Fidbiglians. Who are the Fidbiglians? I want to go home. I don't want to talk about Fidbiglians. I love Shh, baby bumbles. Don't cry. The Fidbiglians are a recent discovery of mine. A small-time race of six-dimensional creatures. Apparently, they've taken upon themselves to do intelligence tests of whatever planets they've just made the leap into space. They gather the first organisms to leave those planets and test them against each other. Make them new games and stuff. I don't know. Okay, so here we have, you know, repeating everything that just happened in the previous scene. But in the previous scene, we had our hero hearing this stuff for the first time, and it was really amazing to listen to and to hear and to, that we were really wrapped up in the story and now we've got the same information being repeated with the secondary character talking to tertiary characters telling us the same thing we've already heard. So this should be cut. This should be cut. Okay. I accept that judgment. You accept that judgment. Oh, I, that makes me feel so good. Okay. Whoever wins, their planet gets to live. The losing planets are destroyed. Why? I don't know. The Galactic Empire doesn't even ask them to do it. They just like doing it. They're enthusiastic volunteers. How does this destroy the earth? I understand. I want mama. I want mama. Shut up, baby. It'll work because I made sure Earth sent a dog into space first. There's no way a stupid dog can compete against creatures from other planets who actually built their own ships. Laika's no genius. I mean, great heart, but no scholar. Earth will lose. It'll be destroyed. Our hands are clean. And you pay me. This sounds unnecessarily convoluted! <laughs> Why do you want Earth destroyed anyway? But the question remains unanswered for now, for the door whizzes open. So, yeah, you know, I'm not a big fan of uh, this plot twist. Like I said, I love the baby's characters. Uh, not a big fan of the Blue Mask plot twist. And I feel like just in general, you know, we don't want to find out all this stuff through this way. We would want to, if you're going to have this big plot twist, we would want to be there with Laika as Laika finds out this plot twist, and we would want to feel it for the first time through her eyes, through our hero. You know, the the audience wants to have one hero. They really don't want to jump back and forth between different heroes. They don't want to have to split their identification. And, you know, I certainly, while I'm reading this, I'm going like, I'm still fully identified with Laika, and it's annoying me to be spending time away from my hero. But what about, like, you know, you see, like, you know, I, I want to set up the idea of like something is happening and she doesn't know what's going to happen to her and and so we, we set it up via some other character like it's the it's a Hitchcockian bomb underneath the table we know it's going to blow up for this person that we care about but you know how do you set up that bomb underneath the table is that the right metaphor is that the, yeah. the thing that everybody knows yeah it's very tricky it's you know when you're showing the bomb underneath the table you know you're not finding out everything you're not you know you're not seeing a 10 minute scene of somebody planting that bomb and talking about the fact they're planting that bomb and talking about what's going to happen when that bomb happens so that by the time the bomb goes off we're like oh okay you know I knew this was going to happen a long time ago you know you just get a brief glimpse of the bomb under the table and suddenly you're like oh I'm ahead of the hero now briefly you know I've gotten a brief glimpse of something that puts me ahead of the hero. I'm now more worried about the hero than the hero is, 
But you know, but you don't know everything because if you know everything that the hero doesn't know, then you lose identification with the hero. Startled, Blue Mouse flicks his tool. The two baby holograms vanish. Blue Mouse pretends to be browsing the exotic alien delicacies. <laughs> in comes another Fidbiglian dressed in high-status military uniform, Grand Commander Fibbly Blips, flanked by four Fidbiglian guards. Inspector General, an honor to have you aboard. I trust you are finding everything up to par. Blue Mouse plucks a weird alien vegetable from the table, pops it into his mouth. So far, Commander Fibbly Blips. So far. You don't mind if I ask for your credentials, do you, Inspector General? Merely as a formality. Certainly. I always observe all formalities. But something troubles me, Fibbly Blips. May I speak to you privately? Fibbly Blips hesitates, then dismisses the guards. Now the Blue Mouse and Fibbly Blips are alone. Yes, Inspector General? I'm, I'm actually here outside my jurisdiction, Fibbly Blips. To warn you, the Galactic Empire wants to shut down your operation. Shut us down? We both know Fibiglians do good work for the Empire, keeping Riff Raff out of the galaxy, but the Empire can't explicitly endorse what you're doing. Destroying planets? It's necessary, obviously, but politically, it's a non-starter. They can't handle the truth! You know that. I know that. So that's why I'm here unofficially. Okay, so this is starting to feel like Dune. There's a lot of... <laughs> there's a lot of politics going but on. It, it, it's true life national pain. It's what you ask for. <laughs> it's like people trying to keep other people out of places. Yeah, but it's... Uh, there's it's, just... it's, a, it's a self it's a appointed Minutemen guard trying to patrol a border. It's real life national pain. It's right in your checklist. We've been, we've been away from our hero too long. There's too much geopolitics. It's, it's starting to feel like Dune. It's, uh, you, gotta, you gotta wrap this up. Matt Bird, you're right. Thank you. Okay, now, Matt, I think you can take that and use it as like a sample, and you can plunk it at anywhere you want in the podcast. From now on, for the history of the podcast, I'm just going to put you on a loop saying, you're right, you're right. Matt, your dreams have come true. I've given you the keys to the kingdom. Wonderful. Okay, let's get back into this. Unofficially. I think we understand each other. Help me help you. We've got a good thing going here. I can can advise you on how to keep it going, but we got to keep this visit off the books. I get you now. Thank you, Inspector General. It is most considerate. I believe in what you do. You're the unacknowledged heroes. Here. I keep telling people that! You really get me. Scene 56. Interior. Locker room in Fidbiglian mothership. Fidbiglian tailors are readying Laika with a custom-fitted athletic uniform. Other Fidbiglian's attendants buzz around. A Fidbiglian trainer demonstrates to Laika a variety of weapony sports implements. He demonstrates to her a thing like a metallic mushroom corkscrew. Ah, this is your standard Fosbopper L5QRT. We're in the sloop zone of the corksaw. You can use this to glorpy borp up your opponents. But as you can see, Fidbiglian trainer does a complicated series of cocking motions on various parts of the gun, then pulls the trigger, causing a disgusting torrent of neon, veiny goo to vomit out of the gun, splooging all over the walls. That kind of Flarconian maneuver won't earn you many glob flops in the worm cycle, let me tell you. <laughs> this little next one is a mischievous little fella, technically called the Groonvorp Who's Knit 4000, but most of us just called the Groonhoos 4K. The Fidbiglian trainer has put down the Foz Popper and is picking up the Groonhoos when Laika interrupts. When am I going to meet the other contestants from other planets? Ah, oh, the contestants never meet beforehand. You're not here to make friends. I wouldn't mind making a few new friends. You're here to compete! Right. Who's going to be the alpha? Right. Who's going to be the cleverest, the strongest, who will win glory for themselves and citizenship from the Galactic Empire for their planet? I will! I will! You can do I this! I can! 
tell me again about the Grunhus 4K! That's a spirit! Yeah, okay, so you hold it like this! Give me that! Laika swipes the Grunhus 4K from the trainer and begins firing it with wild abandon around the room. Pesto lightning bolts zing out like a machine gun, ricocheting off the wall with chaotic chiming noises. Yeah, I can do this! I'm a good dog! We got a winner! Let's get out there and meet your opponents. Yes, all the other organisms intelligent enough to design and build their own rockets and daring enough to fire themselves into the unknown and evolved enough to take the next step into space! Laika's confidence wavers, remembering that she is here under false pretenses, but she steals her nerves. A faraway whistle blows. Time to move! I can't wait to meet them. The trainer and Laika sprint down the hallway. A door swings open into a vast arena, surrounded by spectator stands, packed with Fidbiglians. All around the arena, other doors are opening, and other creatures, vague in the distance, also entering the arena. Laika sees the other creatures, although we don't see them yet. She stops, shocked. They're all... What? They're all... Uh, James indicated for me to stop. Why should I stop? Oh, you haven't talked in a long time. I mean, what's wrong? It's good things. It's good. Things are going along. They're moving. No notes. Let's keep going. Jesus. Scene 57. Interior. Skybox and Fibiglian Mothership. Blue Mouse and Commander Fibbly Blips are in the luxury skybox, looking over the arena, a vast space full of elaborate obstacle course equipment like a roller coaster mashed together with a jungle gym and labyrinth and several multi-level sports fields. The skybox itself is full of luxurious trappings and more tables with alien delicacies. Our private spectator chamber. Do you have anything like this in the capital? You certainly don't skimp on amenities. How can you afford to keep all this going? That's the beautiful part. Just before we demolish a game-losing planet, we sell what's left for scrap. If the planet has a halfway interesting culture, we grab some of that too and put it in syndication. You've got it all figured out. Fibbly Blips hands Blue Mouse an alien cocktail. Cheers. Cheers. Have you seen the contestants yet? Yes, they all seem evenly matched. Really? All the contestants? Nobody who seems like they're obviously must lose? Out of their depth? Actually, it's a funny thing. The, the contestants are always strangely consistent. Oh, oh, here they come. It's starting. Blue Mouse looks out the window into the arena as the contestants emerge from their doors. He is stunned, just as Laika was, but in a panicked way. They're all... why... they're all... Scene 58, interior of a... Fib, uh, interior, arena of Fibiglian Mothership. All the doors are open. Twelve different organisms have walked out into the arena, including Laika. And yet, they're all dogs. Okay, so big record scratch sound here. This is where you lose me. Now, this is something we talked about when I ran my original pitch. I said that part of the problem here is that in my conception, in my pitch... He, you know, sorry, she, Laika, would be the only one there who had not invented her own ship and would have to sort of pretend that she was just like the others and invented her own ship and would have to pretend that she wasn't really a dog and that she was a member of the dominant species of her planet who had built the ship. And then I said, but one of the problems with that is it would probably be common for people to send up a dog in space for the first time they sent up someone into space, that usually it wouldn't be someone who had created their own ship who would go up into space. And your response to that at the time, and again, at the time, I did not know you would actually write this, <laughs> but your response to that at the time was, oh, wouldn't that be interesting if it turned out they were all dogs? And kind of like in Harry Potter, when Harry goes to Hogwarts, everybody there is not an 80-year-old wizard, but they're all kids just like him. But it violates the whole concept. We're straying very far from the original concept here, which is that, again, I feel like, and the problem here is that we're taking the onus off of the hero. I think that, you know, the hero has to be behind the eight ball the whole time, and if they're all dogs, then most of the conflict of the story is gone, as far as I'm concerned. You know, the, the conflicts of the story should be driven by the fact that 
she has to pretend that she built this thing, that she has to, that, you know, the very concept here is that they take the first being to leave a planet on the assumption that this being will be a representative of that planet and will be able to compete in these games. Once you get to this idea of it's they're all dogs, then that whole concept is gone. It's blown away. I, I guess, like, may, maybe that concept is not the thing that spoke to me in the original idea. And so I, I wrote what spoke to me. And, like, I, I like the idea of the relationship between Blue Mouse and Laika changing over time. There was no it, it, Blue Mouse in the pitch. You made up the Blue Mouse. Well, I, okay, but let's let's go beyond the pitch and just say, like, like I think she, definitely the Hamlet has to have a ratio at the beginning. You just can't have like a a, a, a Laika at the beginning who no. just has no friends or anything. I like but, the I like I especially I like the role the Blue Mouse plays, especially in the beginning and even later on. So I, what I once it gets especially if like obviously this is an overblown episode for a first episode of a half hour comedy but let's say i was trying to do that the last thing i would want to do is expand the role of all the other dogs so and i guess maybe the thing that's not interesting to me is all the games and tests and everything and what's interesting to me is the relationship between Leica and the blue mouse the relationship between the blue mouse and fibbly blips and what happens with Arkady later, in which like she kind of Arkady leads all of the 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 other alien dogs and kind of like um, rising up, which is what right. Arcadia always wanted to do. Uh, spoiler alert: We're getting and, ahead and, of ourselves. Yeah, but I, I guess like maybe my the, you gave me original idea, and then I did something with it that isn't exactly what you wanted, but it was it was what spoke to me right. and. The idea of like a bunch of games, like I obviously I just like as we go on, you see I dispose of those in a bunch of montages, right? Um, Which is wh- fun. What I'm interested in is the relationship between Blue Mouse and Laika, and I don't and it, all these characters that we would be introducing on page you know fifty or so, uh, I I didn't really feel committed to and 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 so I just had them be, just be a kind of a Greek chorus, a bunch of kind of undifferentiated mass of other. And so I thought the best way to do that is have them be people who are more or less equal to her, and they're also other dogs. And I thought that was amusing that, of course, every planet would send right. up a That's an ironic twist. Every planet would send up a dog-like creature at first, and but we'll then, get up to that. But wouldn't they have noticed by this point that their entire concept didn't work well, since every planet was sending dogs? Well, the beauty of it is that these uh, Fibiglians are idiots. Right, uh, um, and, and so that's why I think an incompetent empire is always more funny than an evil empire. I disagree. Okay, I yeah. At this point, I'm at this point. You're on your own. You're you've broken free from the pitch. We'll see if we'll see if you can uh, if you can survive on your own. Oh my we'll gosh, I've broken free yourself. of the pitch. It, it, this is actually this if if this is like the 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 kind of Joseph Campbell like thing of you and me. Like this is when I've I've gone past meeting the goddess because I've fulfilled the the pitch, but now this is the atonement with the father. Atonement and now I'm mean, having my ass kicked by the world. And you're saying, This is not the pitch I gave to you and you're rising up like Oz, you know, and I'm like little Dorothy saying, Oh, but this is just my little belief that I have and and, and like we'll see what happens. Okay, we'll see what happens. Okay. Sure, some of them have different minor features, an extra eye or six legs instead of four, or a tail that's also a stinger, or vestigial wings or antenna, but they're all recognizably dogs. Laika, Cox, or Grunhu's 4K. This I can do! An incomprehensible announcement squawks over the speakers, and suddenly the gravity switches off. 
All the alien dogs and Laika tumble up into the air, clutching their weird weapons, barking and yowling. A flurry of electric bolts zip past Laika. She flinches away, somersaults over to a girder, pushes off, cocks her gun, and starts zapping everyone left and right. The game has begun! The biglians in the stands go wild! 59. Montage. Laika and the other dog aliens zip around, shooting at each other, going through incomprehensible obstacle course, hurling, hurling balls at each other, whacking each other with sticks, etc. Through it all, it becomes clear. Laika is dominating this game. She is loving it. Looks close to winning. Laika spots Blue Mouse in the skybox and gaily waves to him just before she dispatches another player. Scene 60. Interior. Skybox and Fidbiglia Mothership. Blue Mouse looks increasingly distraught. If Laika wins, Earth will be spared. His plan to destroy Earth will be derailed. He comes to a decision. Excuse me for a moment. Oh, you don't want to miss this. It's the big Blimblorp finale before halftime. Sudden death overs or a Plooby Pop Scroob. The Plooby Pops are fine. It's the Scroob I find tiresome. Well, some people do say that. Blue Mouse exits into bathroom. 61, interior, skybox bathroom. Blue Mouse whips out his tool again. The holograms of Baby Bonko and Baby Bumbles reappear. They are both having a temper tantrum. Why haven't you destroyed Earth yet? I'm trying. I'm trying. You promised. You said you were going to destroy Earth, and then you didn't do it, and then you saw me. There's a kink in the plan. I thought Laika would lose because she's just a dog, but they're all dogs. I'm scared of doggies. I don't like big dogs. The tail goes whap whap and hits me in the face and knocks me down. Blue Mouse is ruminating as if to himself. Maybe it's a convergent evolution. Every gene pool that develops intelligent life for some reason must eventually evolve a dog-like species too. And due to some deep-seated psychological need or cosmic coincidence... Every planet sends a dog, or something like that, into space first. Okay, so that is the classic explainer, where you have an idea and you're like, well, you know, I've got to somehow justify this, so I'm going to have two characters stop and explain how such a thing might, could happen. And uh, it, it sounds awful. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. It, 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 I think it kind of comes out of, like, the the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, kind of feeling like you, there was, like, a, a pl- like, it turns out that, like, in, I, I think this was not in the in the books, but in the in the uh, radio scripts, it turns out like every planet has um, evolved a drink called a gin and tonic. Right. Like some called gin and tonics and some called a genan tonics or whatever. But like every planet, for some reason, by cosmic coincidence, has evolved a gin and tonic. Which is um, fine. Well, which is fine. But, that, but I guess the problem it is feels, here it feels like you're you're stretching to make your to make your plot work. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, th- I mean this is invalid and bad. Um, but I, I guess but when. I'm not going to justify it. I'm just like saying, if you want to look at the struts and the girders behind how I think, it's like, oh, yeah, I can do something like that gin and tonic joke. Right. But it doesn't feel like a joke here. It feels like an explainer. Yeah, it it doesn't. Um, Yeah, well, so be it. So be it. What are you talking? (laughs) Your big words hurt my little baby ears. Don't worry. I'll fix it. You better. Fix it. Or we're gonna come and fix it ourselves. No, no. Blue Mouse looks terrified. I've got it under control. No need to come, Baby Bonko. There better not be any need. <laughs> <laughs> Scene sixty-two. Interior. Locker room and Fidbiglian mothership. 
Halftime break. Fibiglian trainer spritzes Laika with water, massages her back. Laika looks exhausted and yet energetic, aglow with athletic achievement. You've got this! All wrapped up! You're a natural! You're the best I've ever seen! How long till halftime's over? Ten minutes! Can you do me a favor? Before I have to go back out there, I don't know if you could arrange it, but if there's time... Scene 63. Interior. Skybox and Fibiglian mothership. Commander Fibbly Blips watches a halftime show. Blue Mouse joins her from the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Did I hear you crying in the bathroom like a baby? Oh, I just like to cry like a baby to let off steam. Huh! So many different species in the universe. So many fascinating characteristics. The diversity of life, a fascinating mosaic. Until you blow them all up. Oh, well, we don't want too many fascinating species. Feels crowded. Scene 64. Interior. Corridor and Fibiglian mothership. Laika happily trots up hallway with Fibiglian trainer. She's headed to the skybox section. Scene 65, interior, skybox. Speaking of, why do you destroy the planets that do worse at these games? Survival of the fittest! We don't want to let anyone into the galaxy who can't pull their weight. But isn't it exactly those planets who will do well at the games that you should want to, you know, maybe destroy? Okay, so in my original pitch, this was the big twist, is that they don't actually destroy the planets that do poorly in the test, they destroy the planets that do well in the test. And this and comes then, at absolute middle of the, this is page 46 of 70 exactly where the twist should be right but the twist is does not land well here this is the twist first of all the twist should be something that the hero finds out the hero should suddenly even better if the hero figures it out mm. but the hero should find it out at this point and once again we're spending most of our time away from our hero uh we're you know we're not we're finding at this point we can't really identify with Leica, but we can't really identify with Blue Mouse either. Uh, neither one has all of the elements we need to have a hero. It's very hard to identify at this point. But you know we should the twist should land like a atom bomb here. The twist should be a complete pivot for the for everything. And instead, it's sort of well, you're not even getting the twist from the Fibiglians. The mm. Fibiglians aren't the ones saying, like, ahaha, we're really destroying the ones who succeed. Or we're not getting the twist from Leica, we're getting the twist. It's like someone else figures out the twist independently. Someone's like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't it make more sense to do it the other way? Not, not a fan of this reveal. For instance, who's in first place right now? Well, let's see here. Earth. Earth. Okay. Never heard of it. Sounds evil. The thing is, the planets that will fail at the games, they'll never be a threat to the Galactic Empire. But the planets who ace the games, like this Earth, they're cunning and strong. If we let creatures from Earth come into space, they might use that strength and intelligence to take over. The planets that do best at the games are the ones that are going to be the biggest threat. Exactly. You've got it. So that's why you're here. That's the big change you want to bring to our Fidbiglian planetary tests. I'm so glad we see eye to eye on this. I knew we'd understand each other. We do understand each other, don't we? The vibe changes. Fibbly Blips has been emboldened to do what she, he wanted to do for a while now, to make a romantic move on Blue Mouse. Blue Mouse realizes why Fibbly Blips has indulged him so much up to this point, why he has been able to get away with so much. His expression goes from surprised, to slightly disgusted, to intrigued, to accepting, in for a penny, in for a pound. Blue Mouse and Fibbly Blips start totally making out. The door opens. It's Laika. She was out in the hall, had overheard everything. She looks betrayed and heartbroken. Stop making out with that alien! Oh, uh, this isn't what you think- I don't care about that! You want to destroy Earth. It's one of the evil Earthlings. 
So this is good. I'm glad that we finally reunited uh, Leica's perspective with the Blue Mouse's perspective. Reunited and it feels so good. Yes. Reunited and it's understood. Matt yes. Bird right. and James Let's... Kennedy, they're making right. a podcast. They're drinking wine and beer and they're reunited. I'm waiting for you to stop. Are you done? Good. Okay. Yeah, I like how you put Leica and the Blue Mouse back in the same headspace and on the same level of knowledge. And, I, you know, this is good. It's a good way to do it. We always love it. Audiences always love it when a hero overhears something and stumbles in on somebody and gets to confront them with something they've overheard. And yet it's not... The thing that she's upset about is not that Blue Mouse is making out with Alien, which we are... They kind of set up to think that is a thing. Right. It's that it's, he's about to destroy the Earth. However, we're kind of like given a moment to think like, Oh, Leica has feelings for the Blue Mouse. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, why are you making out with this person? Right. Okay. Blue Mouse brandishes his weird tool, pointing it at Leica. Everyone clear the room for your own safety. What's going on? This thing that calls itself Leica isn't an earthling at all. She's a holozoic overlord 16, a fugitive from justice from the galactic police. What? I've got this, but everyone has got to get out. I have orders to subdue her and bring her back to the capital. She's dangerous. This battle won't be pretty. Fibbly Blips is hustled out by our Fibbiglian guards. Soon it's nobody but the Blue Mouse and Laika. We only have a few minutes. Let's get out of here. Get out of here? I've already rigged up the Sputnik to take with some of my own technology. We can use it to fly anywhere in the galaxy now. Let's go. Okay, I'm so much happier now. I feel like things are back on track. That This is a good story. I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, I'm so much happier to have our heroes reunited and on the same page. What a storyteller! Yes, indeed. What a storyteller you are, James. But you know, I think you have to lay the, you have to take them apart to bring them back together. I, I agree. That can work to a certain extent. I think they need to, it needs to happen much quicker. With you? Yes, with me. You were trying to get them to destroy the Earth. What did Earth ever do for you? You were born in a frozen alley and barely survived by fighting for Eve. Every scrap. Then some humans took you in, but why? Only because they wanted to shoot you into space. They didn't care if you lived or died, or if you ever came back. They're never intended for you to live, Laika. You owe Earth nothing. But it's home! You need to see the universe. Come with me. I'll show you things that make Earth look like last week's turd. We can traipse the galaxy. And go around blowing up other planets? It's my job. What? Am I supposed to starve? I'm a planetary hitman. They get hired to destroy a planet, I find a way to take it out. It's not personal. It's personal to me. I've waited a hundred years for this payday. I'm not backing down now. Forget about it. You're off Earth now. Let's tour the galaxy together. What would I be, some kind of pet to you? You said it, not me. Or you could be a stray. Take your pick. Ooh, good dialogue callback. I love those. You had an objection before to the Blue Mouse being a hitman, but if you have somebody else who's a moral counterbalance to a hitman, it can make for people having crackling dialogue, which is differing kind of moral basises from which to argue from. And I believe basises is a word. Basises. We're your nemesises. Nemesises. <laughs> you know, I just I just don't like it. I just don't like it, man. I th- but I think that you are just caught up with this idea of, like, you have a distaste for something that was in vogue in 1998. No, that's not it. It's, you know, I feel like it, it speaks more to my dislike for Adult Swim. It, you know, it's this idea. The reason, the number one reason I didn't like the pilot for Rick and Morty is that at one point, wait, which one's the scientist? Rick or Morty? Rick. The Rick, you know, casually kills off uh, someone in Morty's school, and it's a gag. 
And I'm always like, ugh, it's one thing to have, like, you know, your Jean-Pierre Melville and you're making a samurai and you're making, you know, a serious hitman film. But this idea of, you know, what I always call just misanthropic writing where, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. This character wants to kill a bunch of people, whatever. It's no big deal. Or Rick, you know, casually kills off one of Morty's classmates. It's a gag. Uh, I don't like it. I'll tell you why you're different, uh, why you're different and why you're wrong. Um, It's because in animation... These are. If it was live action, I would be totally on your side. But animation, people are just ciphers or symbols for people. They're not actually people. That's the whole advantage of animation. Yeah, I'm one way over. Let's keep going. Laika seems so physically ill she can barely speak. You're a monster. Oh, and you'd rather hang out with the Fabiglians? Is that your pack? Better choose fast. Laika is so upset that she starts coughing <laughs> and heaving and almost going into convulsions. <laughs> coughing so hard, it's like she's vomiting. <laughs> And she vomits out Arcady the cockroach. Okay, I love this. I I loved Arcady when we had him before. I missed him. I loved, but and yet I love the fact that he got eaten because that was sort of delightful. And now even better, we get the best of all possible worlds. He gets vomited back up. He's back in just when we need him. I love this. I wonder if too much time passed before seeing Arcady again. Yeah. I wonder if like um I I don't want to add anything to this, but if. Like, it could have some kind of dream or something, or some kind of reverie, which she thinks of, of Arcady, and Arcady speaks a little bit in the middle, so that we could just touch that, we could tag that base, you know, no, I think before we steal third? I think it's just the opposite. You just need to cut out 30 pages, and then there won't be, <laughs> there won't be as long. Yeah, and maybe the, you're right. Uh, whenever you're like, you know, we don't have enough of a sense of this here. It was, maybe we should add something in. No, they always, the, the answer is always to cut something out. Yeah, you're right. Okay. I'll be Arcady for this scene. Mm-hmm. Well, I've just about heard all I need to hear. This is crazy. You're all terrible people. What we must do is overthrow the Fendiglians. How have you been alive all this time? We cockroaches can survive anything. I was in the Totskoye nuclear test. I've been in worse situations near your stomach. Let me tell you. You ate Arcady? And you're lecturing me about ethics. Arcady's one cockroach. He's not a whole planet. I'm right here. I can hear you. And you're both awful. And now I clearly have work to do. Which way to the rest? To where the rest of the alien dogs are? Down that hall. Wait, what? I have a revolution to inspire. Rise up against the Fidbiglians! The door opens. Fiddly Blitz is there with a bunch of Fidbiglian guards. Fiddly Blitz is in tears, but his/her face is set with determination. Oh, Blue Mouse! How could you do this to me? I thought we had a connection. Guards, kill them all. The guards close in. Commercial break. Okay, good. We've uh, this is a good place for a commercial break. It's good that this commercial break is coming sooner than the uh, than the last one came. This is feeling like a TV show. It's feeling pretty good. Scene sixty-seven. Interior corridor of Fibiglian mothership. Blue Mouse and Arcady ride Laika, who is frantically running away from the pursuing Fibiglian guards. I'll be Arcady for the rest of the time. How did you trick them for so long? They administer intelligence tests, Laika. Do you think that's the kind of pastime that actually intelligent people do? They're catching up! The familiar fanfare of the games begins to start. Halftime is over. I have an idea. 68, interior, arena of Fibiglian mothership. Laika sprints into the arena. The Fibiglian guards are hot at her heels. All the alien dogs are here, poised with their, in their starting positions, ready to start play. The buzzer goes off, and the second half of the games begin. As before, the gravity is cut off. Everything goes higgledy-piggledy as the Fibiglian guards struggle in the game's zero gravity, floundering. The other dogs see the Fibiglian guards coming after Laika. They bark and bay unhappily. When the Fibiglian guards start shooting, the other alien dogs flee. The skills that Laika learned in the obstacle course come in use here. She's able to elude and bamboozle the Fibiglian guards, who are not very good at the very tests they designed. 
Scene 69. Interior. Arena of Fidbiglian Mothership. Another part. Arcady agitates among the other 11 alien dogs, who all seem very interested in what the cockroach has to say. Rise up, dogs of space! You have been brought here to fight against each other! But what would happen if you all bound together and worked as one to overthrow your oppressor? One alien dog leans over to another. That small six-legged dog makes a hell of a lot of sense. Scene 70. Interior. Arena of Fidbiglian Mothership. More crazy thrilling action as Laika runs away from the Fidbiglians with Blue Mouse tucked into her collar, shouting out orders and suggestions just as before. Tactic G5, look out behind you. 7 o'clock, reverse, you can do this, you're a good dog. I'm a good dog, and you're an awful mouse. I'm a smart mouse. Okay, right there, that was great dialogue. That you've encapsulated their whole relationship and their conflict in a way that's pithy and quick and good dialogue and would allow you to snip out a lot more of other things because you've summed it up so well right there. I wonder if it could be done more comedically, though. Or, no. or, 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 or like, or maybe the comedy should just be distributed elsewhere. Yeah, never, never, never blow off a character moment for the sake of comedy. Ooh, that's that might be a, a, a like a, a thing you can put on the blog. Never blow blog off a character moment. Never blow off a character when moment when you when you think you want to make a joke. I'll cite your I'll cite your dialogue. I'll cite your uh, your that's scene Kennedy. right there. TM TM trademark. Trademark. Okay, great. Let's go back into this. But all of the Blue Mouse's tactics fail. They are cornered. The Fibiglians close in. Oh, I guess I wasn't so smart after all. Except, wait! Laika whips out from her athletic uniform the little black box that Khrushchev had given her back on Earth. Khrushchev said that if I was ever in really deep trouble, I should use this. Uh. The Fibiglians halt, cautious about the black box. Laika pushes a button on the black box, but nothing happens. The Fibiglians resume closing in on our heroes. I could have told you. It was worth a shot. The Fibiglians are just about to overcome our heroes when suddenly all the alien dogs come whizzing through the air led by Arcady. Urged on by the cockroach's revolutionary rhetoric, the alien dogs brutally attack the Fibiglians, biting them savagely. So this is great. I love all this. It's You've got all your characters coming together. You've got a nice little payoff there with the Khrushchev box that uh, will then pay off again. Ah, uh, but you soon. see, it doesn't pay off. I think there's a, there's a little kind of like a craft thing you can put in here of like the thing that you expect to pay off doesn't pay off. But then and then it when does. it does, that's the thing. When it does pay off, it actually feels satisfying. Right. I think you, you, when the first time you pay it off, don't pay it off. There's something there. We'll have to give that a lot more thought. Yeah, I don't know how to phrase that, but like, the, the, if there's something that's planted early and feels like, this is going to pay off, right. and then you make it not pay off, then when it does pay off, it's satisfying. Yeah, no, I've seen that work. That's a good idea. Onward! Fight! Rise up against your oppressors! You don't have to take meaningless tests to prove your worth! Your worth is inherent! Fight for dignity! This is bullshit! I'm writing this off! Abandon ship! Fibbly Bips brandishes a device, twists its knob, and dematerializes in just the same way as the entire ship had dematerialized when leaving Earth's space. All around, the rest of the Fibiglians dematerialize, leaving the alien dogs snapping at air. The ship is now empty except for Laika, Blue Mouse, Arcady, and the alien dogs. We did it! We took up arms against the elite and showed them the power of the people! Can we go home now? Scene 71, exterior space. A region of space that looks different than either around Earth or the Fibiglian system. A binary star system orbited by exotic planets, including a green planet. The alien mothership materializes with a shimmer. A hangar door opens in the mothership. One of the little alien experimental spaceships that belongs to one of the alien dog contestants hurdles back out of the mothership, returning to the green planet. Scene 72, interior, 
alien experimental dog spaceship space. The alien dog is strapped into his spaceship similarly to how Laika had been strapped into Sputnik 2. The alien dog speaks into a radio headset. Alien dog. Thank you so much. Welcome back home. I thought I'd never see it again. Scene 73, interior, bridge of Fibiglian mothership. Blue Mouse has rigged some contraptions to the Fibiglian navigation system. He's using it to remote fly the little alien ship with the alien dog in it, guiding it back down safely to his own home planet. Thank you. If it wasn't for you all saving us, we'd all be dead. Most thanks of all to Arcady. His message of enlightened socialism has touched us all. After I get home, I swear to work tirelessly on bringing a worker's paradise to my planet, and indeed to all! Yeah, fine. I don't care. Bye! Scene 74. Montage. The mothership materializes in other star systems. One by one, the rest of the alien dogs' ships zoom down to their respective home planets guided by the Blue Mouse. 75. Exterior. Above the Earth. Space. The mothership materializes right by Earth. Scene 76. Interior. Hangar of Fibiglian Mothership. The hangar is cleared of all the primitive alien ships. Sputnik 2 alone remains. Laika and Arcadia are preparing to board Sputnik 2. Blue Mouse is there too. It's clear this is goodbye. Okay. Okay. I won't destroy Earth. I promise. Okay, so can you redeem the Blue Mouse at this point? Are we... Do we love this guy enough that we can go like, Oh, okay, he doesn't want to kill the Earth anymore. Now I can like him. Now I can love him. I don't know. I'm glad, I'm glad you're trying. I'm glad you're going there. I'm still treating the character very provisionally. Maybe we should do something earlier that would make us feel better about the Blue Mouse. Yeah, no. Have some kind of moment of humanity. Yeah, he, he definitely needs one. If he's going to be a co-protagonist, he needs to have more of a moment where I choose to identify with him, which never happened. It seems like the, 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 um, the structure of this, if we were to keep it, demands a kind of like, they both, both Laika and Blue Mouse need to have a moment of humanity. Yes. And, and maybe Laika has it maybe... At some point, I don't know, it I, I just feel more bound to like than the Blue Mouse. Blue, Blue, Blue Mouse needs to have it, um, whether it be a... I, I think it, for Blue Mouse, it seems like what you said in, in your blog, like uh, some kind of like um, universal moment of kind of, uh, what do you, like vanity? Like right. comical vanity? That seems like a Blue that, Mouse thing. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, have him be uh, comically vain. Um, and then that's the moment where we're like, oh, okay, I kind of like this guy. That's a good motive manager for someone who we otherwise can't sympathize with. Mm-hmm. Uh, is someone who it's like, oh, I can't really sympathize with him, but I can empathize with the fact that he's so comically vain about the things he's wrong about. Maybe that's what needs to be upped up, and maybe that's a problem with the slack, the couple first pages of, like, talking to the Blue Mouse. He needs to be more comically vain. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Come back down with us. Earth isn't so bad. And I'd find it easier to trust you about not destroying the planet if you had some skin in the game. Nope. I've spent enough time on Earth on this job. I have a lot of traipsing to catch up on. Just then, all the lights in the ship dim, as though a large amount of energy had been diverted. The lights flicker and come back to full strength, but some staticky shapes are forming in front of our heroes. Katie, didn't you disable the interdimensional gates? Sure, I toggled it to standby, just like you said. I didn't say toggle it to standby, I said untoggle the standby. What's a toggle? The vague shapes resolve. With a shimmer, Baby Bonko and Baby Bumbles appear. They're not holograms this time. This is a real thing. I'm upset. I'm an unhappy baby. I'm a sad baby. Are you a sad baby too, Baby Bumbles? That I am, Baby Bonko. I'm a sad baby. And I'm an angry baby. I'm so sad and angry. I'm going to cry. Oh, Baby Bonko. Why are you here? 
Oh, I think you know why we're here. We're here to finish the job, Blue Mouse. If you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. Isn't that right, Baby Bumbles? So true, Baby Bumbles. You can't destroy Earth. It's my home. Earth makes us very sad and angry babies. That's why Earth has to go bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I do like these guys as villains. I think they're fun, original villains. I'm not a big fan of your vocal performance. <laughs> I, I, I never vocal said I was an actor. <laughs> but uh, but the idea of the babies, I think other people might find annoying. I think I guess you did get notes from one person on the bog. Harvey uh, Jerkwater. Harvey Jerkwater was not a big fan of the babies, but uh, but I think it works. Thank you. Why does Earth make you so sad? We know all about Earth. We've seen humans, and they're young. The resemblance hits too close to home! It's like human infants are sending us up. Their appearance and behavior satirizes us! Ah, satire! That's why you want to destroy the Earth? It offends our vanity! Think about it! What if scientists discovered some weird worm at the bottom of the ocean that looked exactly like you? Wouldn't that freak you out? It freaks me out! I'm sad! And I'm angry! And it makes me feel insecure! It makes me poop my diapers! It makes me poop a gun! <laughs> Baby Bonko grabs the pooped gun out of Baby Bumble's diaper and points it at Laika, Arcady, and the Blue Mouse. You really are a bunch of big babies. Don't say it like that. The term baby in our world is a mark of distinction. It's like saying duke or prince. Baby, baby, baby. Ah! Baby Bonko fires a gun. Just at the same time that Khrushchev's black box, still clipped to Laika's collar, makes a beep. Time seems to stop. Montage. Rewind. Everything that has happened up to this moment, all the way back to the moment Laika pressed the button on Khrushchev's device, flies past us backwards at high speed, rewinding, and then we see it happen again. I'll just jump in here to say I love this. I love this idea. It's a very filmic idea that, you know, we're going to rewind. We're going to see what happened after he pressed the button. This is good screenwriting. I wish I was doing stuff like this earlier in the script. I agree. I think that playing with a format like this and playing with jumping around at time, that's great stuff. And I feel like it, it's your brand. That's what you want to be doing here. Scene 78, interior, arena of Fibiglian mothership. Laika and Blue Mouse are cornered by the Fibiglians. The Fibiglians close in. Oh, I guess I wasn't so smart after all. Except, wait! Laika whips out from her athletic uniform the little black box that Khrushchev had given her back on Earth. Khrushchev said if I was ever in really deep trouble, I should use this. Uh... The Fibiglians halt, cautious about the black box. Laika pushes a button on the black box. Montage. We follow a zigzagging jolt of transdimensional information. As it sizzles out of the black box, zings through psychedelic wormholes in other dimensional spaces, then wriggles back to Earth, into the Soviet electrical grid, into Moscow, leading finally to... Scene 80. Interior. Khrushchev's bedroom. Night. Khrushchev is asleep in bed. Another black box, similar to the one he gave Laika, is on his bedside table. The black box begins beeping. Khrushchev's eyes snap open. Laika needs me. He grabs the phone and begins barking orders. Scene 81, exterior, Moscow residential street, night. An unmarked car screeches to a halt outside an apartment building. Grim-faced KGB agents hustle out of the car into the building. Scene 82, interior, Korolev's bedroom, night. KGB agents burst into the room and shake master engineer Korolev awake. They grab him and drag him out. Scene 83, interior, Keldish's kitchen, night. Different KGB agents hustle into Chief Theoretician Keldish's kitchen, where Keldish is making some hot chocolate. Keldish is dragged out. The hot chocolate remains untouched. 
montage. Throughout the night, various people are visited by KGB agents and are hustled into mysterious cars and whisked to the same location. Scene 85, interior, Khrushchev's control center, night. Korolev, Keldish, and various other Russians of various ages, genders, and classes are herded into the room where Khrushchev awaits. There is a primitive-looking television connected to a computer console with reel-to-reel -reel tapes, blinking lights, etc. The console also has a Nintendo-like controller. You are probably wondering why I've gathered you all here and why I have been harvesting your body parts all over the years. Master Engineer Korolev, your teeth and stomach. Chief Theoretician Keldish, your eye and buttocks. Natalia Abduella, your feet and hands, and so on. I love it. It's a nice little payoff. Something. It's always nice when something just feels entirely like a gag at the time, and an entirely self-sufficient gag, and then you find out, like, no, later it also had a plot element that is only now paying off but it didn't feel like before we were enduring any sort of setup because it felt like a self-sufficient thing. Oh, so you like the spigot on the ass in the bathroom? No, but you do not need the ass spigot or the ass vodka. I think that uh, you you in no way need that to set up this moment. The assembled people breathlessly await. What new torture does Khrushchev have planned? But these were necessary contributions. For from your sacrifice, we will save the earth. For I have taken all your excellent body parts each for the finest of its kind and built from them. Khrushchev turns on the Nintendo-like machine. The TV screen starts staticky, but resolves. 86, interior, Sputnik 2 engine room. A light on the briefcase-sized box that the blue mouse had puzzled over earlier flashes green. The briefcase springs open. A human-sized Russian zombie unfolds itself from within the briefcase, clearly stitched together from the parts Khrushchev had taken from Korolev, Keldish, all the other Russians. The zombie lurches left and right, stumbling out of the Sputnik 2, as if clumsily controlled by something outside itself. 87. Interior. Khrushchev's control center. Night. Korolev, Keldish, and the rest of the visitors stare up at the TV. On the TV, we see the Fibiglian hangar from the Russian zombie's point of view. Khrushchev is controlling the zombie with his Nintendo-like controller, like a video game. You see, you can make it do anything. Walk, turn, jump, strike. Here, Korolev, take a turn. It's got your teeth and guts, after all. Korolev accepts the controller from Khrushchev and gingerly begins to play. Khrushchev looks at him with innocent glee, like a child sharing his toy. Premier Khrushchev, this is extraordinary. But to, to what end? To save the Earth, Master Engineer. What? What, what are you talking about? Scene 88, interior, hangar of Fidbiglian mothership. We have returned to the exact scene right before Baby Bumbles and Baby Bonko shoot Laika, Blue Mouse, and Arcady. The last few lines proceed just as before. The term baby in our world is like a market distinction. It's like saying Duke or Prince. Baby, baby, baby. Ah! Baby Bonko fires a gun just at the same time that Khrushchev's black box still clipped to Laika's collar makes a beep and the Russian zombie lunges in between the two babies and our heroes and the bullets from Baby Bonko's gun thud into its undead flesh, stopping the fusillade, saving our heroes. And yet the Russian zombie keeps on lurching. <laughs> Scene 89, interior. Khrushchev's control center, night. Korolev, Keldish, and the other assembled mutilated visitors cheer as they score their first victory of blocking Baby Bonko's bullets. Hooray! The controller is passed from person to person <laughs> as they score their first victory of blocking Baby Bonko's bullets. Hey, that's the, 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 the controller is passed from person to person as they take turns playing the Russian zombie, who is now pummeling the evil babies. Laika, the blue mouse, and Arkady run away. Keldish feverishly plays the game. Ah! I saw her! I saw Laika! I knew it! I knew that dog would pull through! Time enough later for a motion. For now, protect that dog. And do, do you want chips? I have some great soda, too. This could be a real party. 
Scene 90, interior, corridor of Fidbiglian mothership. Laika bounds down the corridor, is guided by the blue mouse, who is telling her which ways to turn in the labyrinthine network. Arcady rides along, too. Where are we going? The room that contains the planet-destroying machinery. We have to break it before the babies get at it. <coughs> Laika skids to a halt. For Baby Bonko and Baby Bumbles have appeared at the far end of the corridor, maniacally toddling towards them, even as they still fight against the Russian zombie. They're closer than I thought. Go! Go! Baby Bonko delivers a walloping punch to the Russian zombie. The zombie fights back. So let me just say, as much as I'm enjoying this, and I'm enjoying this quite a bit, it's still taking us, you know, we're it's still giving us yet another reason to root for somebody besides our hero. We've still never ha really had that shift of proactivity for Laika. We've never had that moment where she takes charge of her own story, where she starts driving the narrative. She's still being saved by somebody else. It's a great moment. It's a great scene. I really like this plot turn, but I think that it, it's also overall problematic. So um, I wonder if there's a point in which, it, in which like... Um, should the hero always drive their own saviorship? Yes. Like, but, like, so Luke rescues Princess Leia, but then he's completely at sea at that point, and that he relies on Princess Leia to get him out of the situation that he got himself into, and then he relies on Han Solo to get him out of that situation, and then he kind of, like, is able to shoot a gun after that, but... Like, I don't I don't know if the hero should always be totally in control. I think at a certain point their their um their lieutenants, their co-heroes have to have a time which they come into their own and show their worth. Yeah, but I think that right now we've never gotten that from Laika. That Laika has never been driving the story, has never been you know, it'd be one thing if they were, you know, handing it off like a relay race, but Laika has just consistently been someone who is reactive, not proactive, someone who is constantly getting rescued instead of doing the rescuing. That's fair, but like, wasn't she the one who like figured out like who won the games, who was good at the games, and the one who is the one who pushed her way into space, and the one who when you kind of discovered by proactive action what the blue mouse is up to but you've made it uh, yeah and that was that was her best moment was when she overheard that and discovered what was going on and confronted him but you know as you yourself have said over and over again the games were chumps games that you know mm -hmm. so we are not really feeling like that's a good mo proactive moment when she wins these games because you've made it very clear that only chumps would try to win these games scene 91 interior khrushchev's control center night all the assembled Russians shout and yell advice as Khrushchev twiddles the controller, sweatily attempting to fight against Baby Banco and Baby Bumbles. You can do it, Khrushchev! Never have I been more proud of the United Soviet Socialist Republic than now! This was worth, worth it all! I would gladly give my eye and buttocks again for this moment! Somebody put more chips into my mouth. <laughs> Scene 92, interior, mechanical control center of the Biglian mothership. The battle has moved into the bowels of the ship, where various complicated hardware is housed. Laika dashes toward the planet-destroying controls, with Blue Mouse and Arcady barely hanging onto her back. Baby Banco and Baby Bumbles force their way into the control center, too, barely held back by the weakening Russian zombie. Don't touch anything. All this stuff is super highly technical and dangerous. Go there. Run. Over to the right. Oh, wait, do you mean over... Laika whips around and on accident tumbles into a different control panel. That panel starts blinking and beeping. You know, you've got the hero once again doing something accidentally there. Like, oh, and then Laika accidentally hits this thing. Mm -hmm. Laika should be doing things on purpose from this point on. Like, should they? Be... Yes. The, the, uh, what, what, so this, is, this makes a, a good point. Like, if we're going to make a d design a rule... At what percentage in the screenplay should people stop doing things accidentally? At this point. <laughs> okay. Uh, like, what, 70%, 50%? Like, should it be the midpoint? 
Should I would I mean, say seventy five percent. Okay. By seventy by three quarters of the way in. But okay, how about this? Should be doing things. If it, if it's a thing that makes shit get worse, is it okay for them to do something accidentally? Ideally not. I, you know, at this point, we just want the hero to be very intentional. Scanning process initiated. I said don't touch anything! Sorry! What did you do? Arcady looks out the window of the ship and outside sees a door opening and a gun-like apparatus emerging. Scene 93, exterior above the Earth's space. The Fibiglian mothership looms near the Earth. Once again, the gun-like apparatus from before emerges from the mothership's underside. A steady beam of light streams out of the gun. The gun swivels back and forth, sweeping its light over the Earth. The scanning light flashes over Russia. Scene 94, interior, Khrushchev's control center, night. The Russians are still controlling their zombie through their controller, but suddenly Keldish shudders. Did you feel that? Yes, strange. Eyes on the screen. Those babies are fighting back. Scene 95, interior, mechanical control center of the Biglian mothership. With a devastating uppercut, baby Banco's fist obliterates the Russian zombie's head, and the entire zombie explodes into an orgy of rancid meat confetti. Now nothing is between our heroes and the babies. Oh, no. Scene 96, interior, Khrushchev's control center, night. All the assembled Russians groan in disappointment as the screen turns into a test pattern with the words game over superimposed in Russian. Oh, Oh, no. no. What does this mean? Scene 97, interior, mechanical control center of Fidbiglian mothership. Baby Banco and Baby Bumble stomp towards Laika, Arcady, and Blue Mouse, who are the last defense against a planet-destroying controls. Blue Mouse, at last, rises to the occasion. He steps forward and aims his futuristic tool at Baby Bonko and Baby Bumbles. Not a step further. I will lay down my life with my friends, and if that's what it takes, and yes, I will die for the planet that I have come to think of as home, and it's wonderful creatures like these who are so loyal and good that Baby I- Bonko sweeps Blue Mouse aside with zero effort. Baby Bumbles presses a button on the planet-destroying controls, a mounting horrible noise. So you realize at this point, I'm like, oh, please don't tell me he's about to blow up the Earth, because this is already too similar to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and if he blows up the Earth, oh, please don't let him blow up the Earth right here. On the contrary, if he doesn't blow up the Earth, then the promise of the premise won't be fulfilled. All right, let's keep going. Scene 98, exterior, Star City, night. Russian scientists look up into the sky, which has suddenly turned red. Scene 99, exterior, New York City, day. Americans walking in the street look up into the sky, which has suddenly turned red. Scene 100, exterior, Tokyo, night. Japanese walking around look up into the sky, which has suddenly turned red. Scene 101, exterior, Australian beach, morning. A group of playing children look up into the sky, which has suddenly turned red. Scene 102, interior, Khrushchev's control center, night. Khrushchev, Korolev, Keldish, and the rest of the Russians glance in alarm around the room, which is filled with red light. Scene 103, exterior, above the Earth's space, Earth explodes. Scene 104, interior, mechanical control center of Fibiglian mothership. Laika, Blue Mouse, and Arcady stare at the wreckage of planet Earth in mute shock. The babies giggle. Well, baby Vanko, we did some good work here today. Did we do some good work? Yes, good hard work. Speaking of work, Blue Mouse, I think we'll skip the tab on this one. Go bye-bye. I believe so, baby Bumbles. Bye-bye. Baby Bonko and baby Bumbles shimmer and vanish. Laika, Arcady, and Blue Mouse stand there silent for a long moment. 105. Exterior. The emptiness of space where Earth used to be. The Fibiglian mothership hangs in an empty void. Scene 106. Interior. Mechanical control center of Fibiglian mothership. Our heroes still haven't gotten over it. I guess sometimes the bad guys win. Sometimes the bad guys win. The bad guys win every time, Laika. 
There was a time when I knew that. I should have remembered. You just have to figure out which bad guy is going to do the least damage. So where do we go now? What do we do? There's nowhere for you to go. I can't go anywhere either. The babies have already put out a word of what I've done. My name is Mud. None of my old friends will help me now. Can we stay on this ship? You don't think the Fidbiglians will be back? They will, for sure. It won't be so nice next time. We'll have to get on the Sputnik 2 as soon as we can and- Wait. Not yet. What? Laika approaches a scanning gun control panel. There is a blinking light next to a symbol that seems to indicate 100%. Laika presses a button. What are you doing? Scene 107, exterior, the emptiness of space where Earth used to be. A door just above the gun-like apparatus opens. Within, a vast three-dimensional printer swiftly begins to replicate the Earth, just as the same printer replicated the Sputnik 2 before. Scene 108, exterior, star city, night. With blazing speed, block by block, everything is rebuilt. Russian scientists look up into a starry sky. 109, exterior, New York City, day. With blazing speed, block by block, everything is rebuilt. Americans walking in the street go about their business. 110, Exterior, Tokyo, night. With blazing speed, block by block, everything is rebuilt. So, uh, with both the previous montage and this one, as you probably noticed when reading this aloud, you found it's pretty dreadful to read aloud. You don't want to repeat the same verbiage exactly as it was over and over again. Japanese walking around the crowded street unconcernedly. 111, exterior, Australian beach, morning. With blazing speed, block by block, everything is rebuilt. A group of children play on the beach. 112, interior, Khrushchev's control center, night. With blazing speed, block by block, everything is rebuilt. Khrushchev, Korolev, Keldish, and the rest of the Russians are hanging out together. 113, exterior, the emptiness of space where Earth used to be. The fake Earth settles into the orbit of where the old Earth used to be. 114, interior, mechanical control center of the Biglian mothership. Laika, Arkady, and Blue Mouse look out the window. Will they ever know what happened? That they'd all been killed and now they're just copies? There's no difference. Nobody on Earth will ever be the wiser. Should we still go back? No. It wouldn't be the same. You're right. It wouldn't. If you went back, everything might look the same, probably even feel the same a lot of the time. Except just a little bit colder. A little bit meaner. And then it would start to change you too. So that kind of works. That's kind of a fun idea. That's kind of a fun, sad idea. This idea that, you know, they're the only ones who know the Earth's been recreated, and so that's why they can't go back. And, you know, so you're you're entering into this weird thing here where the original idea was, you know, a self-contained idea, but now you're trying to set it up to be the beginning of TV show, and you're trying to find a way to set this up as these three traveling the galaxy together, which in some ways I like because I feel like you've created a, a strong, elemental, classic fundamental triumvirate here of characters and i feel like they could spawn off into new into new adventures you know you're in this very weird situation though where you've got this story that very much feels like a self-contained story and does not feel like you know you have not if you're gonna episode two is gonna be you know starting again really from scratch i mean like literally from scratch given that you've even the earth itself has been recreated from scratch at this point you've cleared everything off the table pretty effectively and it's going to be, you know, you haven't really set yourself up for a TV series at all. You've got great characters, but you've got nothing else to work with at this point. So I'm not sure at all that it's working, this whole idea that, you know, we're setting up a TV series here. But the, that last line sort of makes it work. What, what, what if, I mean, if, like, in Battlestar Galactica, we have a two-hour pilot, and then everything after that is, like, four, 45 minutes. Like, this could be, like, a longer pilot. And nope. then after that, everything ba- is is shorter. Well, Battlestar Galactica actually had a four-hour pilot, I think. Oh, geez. But it was Well, okay. well it let's was say a long pilot, and then everything after that is shorter. And then, like, after this, like, Hitchcock's Guide to the Galaxy and Rick and Morty, for that matter, like, it's just, like, everything after that is just, like, well, here's a new... Or, or 
Um, for that matter, um, Star Trek, the original series, every it's just a new planet every time, and we have some new crazy shit that happens, and it's resolved in a half hour. If they I were on a five-year it. mission in the original show. But here, okay, you have so, no five-year mission. Well, uh, they don't have a five-year mission, but they do have a Blue Mouse who's on the run from... Um, he's kind of like a Han Solo. He's on the run from... You know the the two babies. So he and he's got maybe some unpaid debts in the galactic idea. Um, and then we've got Arcady, who kind of like this kind of firebrand, who's kind of idealistic. And then we have um, Laika, who is heartful. Right. And they're well, kind like of like said, they're, they're going somewhere, get... and they're going to explore, and they're going to see new things, right. and they're going to do stuff. You've like got to get Arthur and Ford and Zephod. But you don't. But what you don't have is the five year mission. You don't have you don't have any sort of narrative driver to drive what's going to be. Pushing the show forward. They look at Earth for a little while. Let's go. 115, exterior, above the replica Earth, space. A small door in the Fibiglian mothership opens. The Sputnik 2 blasts out of the mothership. It seems Blue Mouse has added some extra hardware to the Sputnik 2. The craft still looks clunky, but now it's maneuverable and fast. 116, interior, Sputnik 2 capsule space. Leica, Blue Mouse, and Arcadia are all busy at separate control panels in the cramped space. It's a team effort to fly this thing. Leica gazes out the window as a replica Earth rolls by. Second thoughts? Remember when we were hanging out the night before the blastoff? You said I wanted to ride your coattails. I said from up here in space you could probably see everything. The whole world. How you see it. But before we go, I want to see it up close. I'll never see it again. Blue Mouse hesitates, then nods. 117, montage. The Sputnik 2 zooms down from space and skims along in the lower atmosphere. The Sputnik 2 flies past the Egyptian pyramids, the bustling city of Mumbai, the Grand Canyon, an erupting volcano in Costa Rica, the cliffs of Dover, Venice, the forbidding glaciers of Iceland. All the while, Laika stares out the window. Goodbye! Mumbai. Wasn't it called Bombay at the time? It's uh, called Mumbai now. Uh, but this is good. This is this is a nice little moment of transcendence, a nice little moment of emotion at the end of this extremely silly script. And it works. It works well. Thank you very much. All the while, Laika stares out the window. Goodbye! 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 The refurbished Sputnik 2 pulls up, climbing up into the upper atmosphere, leaving the Earth behind. And now, the rest of the universe. The Sputnik 2 hurdles into hyperspace and vanishes with a blink. Ending credits, post-credits scene... 120. Interior. Khrushchev's control center. Night. The various Russians who had come over to play the Russian zombie are putting on their coats and going home. Khrushchev pleads with them, not wanting the party to end. Come on, I still have plenty of chips. Just because we can't play the game anymore doesn't mean there aren't other things we can do. We can do Truth or Dare or a Ouija board. I think I have one of those. I can run to the score and get some vodka. Good night, Premier. The last guest leaves. Khrushchev is left alone. Aww. Aww. The end. The end. And now you see that I, myself, Matt, am Khrushchev. I always want the party to go on, and I'm always hindered by people who want the party to stop. That did occur to me. He did sound <laughs> quite a bit like you were there when he was saying he wanted the party to keep going. Uh, yes. Um, so, James, uh, this is amazing. This is amazing that you wrote this. This is uh, tremendously flattering and heartening that you took my idea and you decided to save it from the trash heap and turn it into a fully realized thing. This is couldn't have done it without you. No, you could not. Indeed, you could not. I feel like this is you know this is everybody's dream. Is you know you come up with the ideas and someone else writes them. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a great division of labor. Uh, but you know, so this is. I hope I haven't been too rough on you here. Yeah, no. Good. What you've done is put yourself out there. What you've done is something where, especially, you know, allowing us to go through a script that you wrote in three days and is filled with a lot of really good stuff. I feel like there is 
tremendous amount in here that works and works really well. I feel like overall, it's got some of the, the whole reason I, I gave away this idea in the first place is I thought it had certain structural uh, problems, certain structural pitfalls in it that I feel like have not necessarily been overcome here. I feel like some of the things I thought would be problems did turn out to be problems. I feel like there were certain other things I thought that worked about the original idea that didn't work here, that I thought that you had strayed in ways that I thought that made it not work as well as I'd hoped it would work. But then there are a lot of other places where I think, you know, you've solved problems that I didn't think were solvable. And there's places, obviously a lot of places, where you've just brought a tremendous amount of your own creativity and ingenuity to the script and taken what I wrote as a way to launch off into something new. This is great. I'd be, of course, fascinated to hear what other people think about it. If anybody is still listening to this podcast, which is now five times longer than any of our previous episodes. Um, yeah, sure. Go for it. I think... Matt, what you have to realize is that I'm a desperado. Why are you saying desperado? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, um, I, I felt it was, it was, it was that's the role that I play in this podcast. Like, I'm the desperado. You're the desperado. Okay. Yeah. James, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, this was great. Uh, I we will we will get back to our normal format for any of you who are still listening to this thank you for listening to this two and a half hour podcast we will go back to normal in future weeks and thank you so much to James though for uh, taking us on this wild ride for our third episode thanks so much for coming out at this time uh, this is Matt this is James and that's it for this episode of the Secrets of Story podcast Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Hannon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.